So I'm very happy that I'm going to get my Moderna shot today. And I wanted to tell everybody, I think you should get out there and do it too. I even changed one of my songs to fit the occasion. It goes, <clears throat> vaccine, 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 vaccine. I'm begging of you, please don't hesitate. Vaccine, 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 vaccine. Because once you're dead, then that's a bit too late. <laughs> I know I'm trying to be funny now, but I'm dead serious about the vaccine. I think we all want to get back to normal, whatever that is, and that would be a great shot in the arm, wouldn't it? <laughs> Listen, living, listening to Synchronon. Second run. Yes, you listen to the sick or not. The sick and wrong, the world source for antisocial commentary. God, what a bunch of scumbags. Good evening. Welcome to the sick and wrong, the world source for antisocial commentary. I'm one of your host, E. Simon. Hello, I'm the other host, Kate Rambo. Kate Rambo, my arm Hello. is in pain. From all the jacking off that you do. Well, that too, but uh, yes. actually, no, recently my arm's in pain because I got the COVID vaccine yesterday. Oh, well done. And nothing, has it caused your Jufro to uh, start falling out? Are you becoming one of them? There's a, there's a couple side effects I'm going to get to in a second, but uh, I was, you know, they, they put it like far into your deltoid. So I think that's why, like, you know, you get a tetanus shot, it gets a soreness. This is definitely worse than a tetanus shot. Is it in your wanking arm? Because I would want it in the non-wanking arm. It's in it's in my left arm, which is not my go-to. That's that's arm your backwards stranger. Your backward stranger arm. That's the stranger, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I got my COVID vaccine yesterday at the uh, Dodger Stadium. They're doing it like at different stadiums here. They're also doing it. I mean, they have it like Rite Aid, all the pharmaceutical companies, things like that. But the they do in categories. So I think right now. Well, they're done, they've already done the the uh, the seniors, the pensioners, um, and I think they kind of went to they already did they did the immunocompromised, they did the seniors, uh, they've done essential workers, and I think they opened it up recently to uh, food and drug and or food and agriculture, but yes. so I don't really qualify for any of those, and so I've just been kind of waiting, but then my sister she was like, well, you got to register for it. I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, well, register for it because they do lotteries. I was like, would would they just pick out, you know, they do a lottery about who can get it. But apparently, you can't, like, keep, they get a certain amount of vaccines, and you can't, like, keep it sitting there in, like, a refrigerator for, like, two weeks, you know, and just use them when you want to. So uh, people who book appointments, if they don't show up for their appointments, they have extra vaccines. So I guess here they've been doing these lotteries where if you're registered, they'll just email you saying, like, hey, can you make it? And so I got an email on Friday, and I was like, oh, Shit, yeah, I guess I'll go. And so um, I messed up, and I kind of felt a little guilty because I was like, dude, should I do this? You know, there might be old people. But you're going to have it, it eventually. You're going to have it eventually. So, yeah, so I figured, huh. you know, I might as well. So um, I ended up going uh, going over to, uh, yeah, Dodger Stadium. And, you know, they're, remarkably, they're actually pretty organized. Like, they're pretty efficient, like, got everybody through there. Um, but yeah, you get to, you go up there. Show your ID. They like do a little scan of this QR code, and then it's it's all like less than ten minutes, and they like prick you in your arm, and then you have to sit there for like fifteen minutes because they don't, they want to make sure you don't pass out behind your wheel. 
like, course. Well, because some people, I guess, it affects people differently. Most people I've heard get the pain in the arm. It didn't hurt that bad, like, when I first got it. But about, I don't know, maybe like four or five hours, it started feeling sore. And then, like, the next day, really fucking sore. Like, sore that I it was that. hard to, like, reach for things. Like, that's kind of how it is right now. It's like, I can go about here. And that gets that's really it. painful. Um, I have noticed, though, one other thing. My testicles seem a bit larger than normal. Oh, is that where the vaccine's gone straight for? It's gone to I, eradicate your Jewish sperm. I, you know this what, is a good thing. Well, I don't know if eradicating would make him grow, but they've grown a bit. I mean, I'd show you, but we're streaming, and I want to get banned from the YouTube. You can show me later, and I reckon well, that what it's doing is it's eradicating your Jewish sperm so that you can't procreate, and this is a this And that's is a why it's enlarging invention. them? Yeah, because at the minute it's like they've sent in other fighters to kill your fighters. There's a whole war going on in your testicles right now. Maybe. Is is it workplace harassment if I show you my balls? Uh, no, because I said I will I will see your balls and there's witnesses to this. Harrison hated when I did that. He'd send oh, me he like a three-page email saying how much it bothered him, <laughs> like it hurt him to see my balls. He, he was actually upset that you didn't show him your balls enough. And that's why he's no longer. On I'm the show. joking. I never showed him my balls. Never showed whacking my balls. I'm not going to show you my balls either, no matter how uh, how many times you ask me. Um, I don't know. They're big. They're larger than normal, and I just don't know. Maybe it's because I haven't wanked for a few days. Uh, that could be. But I just I've been like you know how when you get when you get something done like this, you start feeling psychosomatic. Like, are there changes in my body? Do I feel sick? Are, is my, like, are my balls bigger? You know, it's like you start thinking about things. So I don't know. As far as I can tell right now, I think it's fine. Glad I did it. Um, however, I've read that, uh, you know, there's you know, there's 41% of Americans say they're not willing to receive the coronavirus vaccine. Really? 41%. It's not like that, not like that in Britain. It's like eight out of 10 people in the age, because we're doing it in eight age ranges and nobody outside of that age range can get the vaccine. Eight out of 10 people are going for it. Well, so you guys are, well, you guys are kind of like sheep. Like government tells you to do something. You're like, all right, yes, yes sheeple. we'll do it. The sheeple, you know? the sheeple of Britain. Not America. We're just like, fucking, we're American. Do you know why we're doing don't it? Tell because us we want what pubs to do. back. We want pubs. Why do you not guys, why don't you guys want pubs back? I want well, pubs back. I will take a vaccine for a pub any well, day. That, that's my sentiment. Exactly. It's like these motherfuckers not taking, we, we need herd immunity. They say 70% of the population needs to be vaccinated in order to uh, obtain uh, herd immunity, which will pretty much wipe out the virus. And in order to do that, you gotta get your fucking vaccine, you pricks. I don't give a so, shit about it. I'm only a doctor of um, fun and cum. I'm not a doctor of science. So if they, give the vaccine to 70% of people, by the time it gets down to me, will I even need to get the vaccine then? I wonder though, if you would be in the 70%. I'm very, I'm gonna be one of the last in line to get it. Because so yeah, I'm, I mean, you guys, I mean, you're also a lot smaller than uh, than the state. So you might, you might achieve herd immunity like way sooner than we quicker, would. Quicker, yeah, I wonder. You know? I would like someone to write in and correct me in a nice tone. Well, confidence in the corona va vaccine has definitely grown in the past couple months. And now Biden like unveiled a partnership with Merck and Johnson Johnson to produce a single dose vaccine. Because the one I got was Pfizer. So I have to go back into March and get a second dose. Um, but I guess the U.S. will have enough 
two-dose inoculations from Pfizer and Moderna to vaccinate every American by the end of May. Every well, that's quicker than what the UK are predicting. Yeah, I was wondering what the UK's rollout is. I think um, they're saying September, June, July, September time. That everyone will have been offered it, and then they're going to go back round again and give it to everyone who hasn't had it yet. Because I mean, in the beginning, there was a lot of shaky, shaky thoughts to it, wasn't there? People, I'm not, not going to check this out. It's going to kill me. But now everyone's been getting it and been surviving. I think people will just go back. Back in September, there were a lot of people, I think it was like 20% said they'd take the vaccine. Then November, I think it's like it went up to, I don't know, 60%. We're like, yeah, or 35% or something. We're like, we'll take the vaccine. And now, I mean, there's, it's, yeah, what is it? Uh, 61% will take the vaccine, but they're still, you know, or 59% will take the vaccine. Still, 41% of people are still yeah, wavering close. about it. And what's crazy about it, despite it, despite the increased willingness, some minority groups and people in lower lower income levels have said that they're less willing to take the vaccine. And is it the minority groups who are like higher who risk? Who are dying? Yeah, yeah, the, the ones who are dying from it. That's strange. You'd think they would be up for it. I don't get it. Black and Hispanic adults said that they're they're more likely to do a wait and see approach before okay. uh, before uh, <laughs> signing up to take the vaccine. Let's wait and see if I die first. <laughs> I know. I thought it's like I thought it was affecting, you know, lower income uh, minorities, lower income people and minorities in general, uh, more so than than like uh, the white population. So I'm surprised they're just like, yeah, fuck yeah, give me the vaccine. They were also like, I think if you were Hispanic or um, or black and you were also like above the age of fifty, you were like further in line to get it. So I don't understand why they aren't lining up. Oh, it's very strange. I don't understand. Oh, I would just get it done, off. mates. Just get it done, mates, and we can all have pups back. We can all go on holidays again. In order to achieve herd immunity, for me to be able to drink in a fucking bar again, get your fucking shot, you pricks. It yes. pissed me off when I was was reading that. But you know what, though? I mean, that's California, Texas, and Florida. They don't give a shit. They should just um, kind of <laughs> cut off Texas and Florida now and just let them sail into the ocean, shouldn't they? And just let them become their own principalities. I'm very interested to see what will happen in Texas. I mean, well, maybe I, I maybe think, it'll just be, what if they just, you know, nothing happens, it's all fine. I don't know. I think I mean, Texas is, what, third for deaths at the minute, but I'm pretty sure that Texas is going to be the first for deaths very soon. A coworker of mine just went to Key West, and she was like, I mean, she went there like a couple weeks ago, but she was saying that uh, it was as if Corona never even happened. Just like everybody who just was in bars drinking, not a single mask in sight. And they were wearing masks and people were looking at them weird. Yeah, Florida. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think part of the thing is with Texas, you know, Texas is a big spring break destination. So that's going to be like a major super spreader. Oh, I see. Yeah, because it's all the young people who are spreading the vaccine to all the old people. So. Yeah, whatever it's oh, going to be well. like a race, like herpes, gonorrhea, COVID, like. Oh, and syphilis. I've heard that syphilis is making a comeback as well. Yeah, I don't know who's going to win this Let's throw syphilis into the mix. It's what what 2021 needs. Syphilis and some good serial killers. Some syph COVID. Um, You know what the... I didn't notice this when I was there, but maybe because I went on Friday, like Friday morning. But um, people have said that there's been anti-vax protesters outside of Dodger Stadium with their signs. And, you know, a month ago... In February, they like blocked like traffic trying to get in there to get your vaccines. Like these far right protesters and anti vaxxers were out there with their signs. 
And so, like, uh, LAPD had to go there and, like, move them out of the way. So in order to, like, allow people to go in there and, uh, and get vaccinated. So now, because of, uh, you know, out of respect for people's First Amendment rights, they co- they're confined to a, a specific area in front of Dodger Stadium where they can come out there with their signs. Ridiculous. I can't wait, I can't wait for them to spread the COVID amongst them. And then they all die. <laughs> where will I their mean, signs be then? I just don't get what, why are they so scared? Like, what's the deal? I mean, it's been tested. You know, it's 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 effective against stopping this virus. The side effects have been proven to be minimal. I mean, I don't know if testicle enlargement is a is a, a common people, side effect, but some people obviously, um, my testicles are the perfect size. I don't want them enlarged, but some people want their testicles to be bigger. Women love that. So some women do love that. But so, I mean, that's the thing. It's it's not some alternative form of medication. It's not like MK Ultra. Or like uh, the Oak Ridge program in the 1960s that we're about to talk about. You know? That was so smooth. Is that a nice segue? But, you know, most yes. people have heard of, um, speaking of MKUltra, most people have heard of Project MKUltra. I mean, a lot of people know, have heard the term, but maybe don't know specifically what it is, but I know there's like a million podcasts that have covered it. Um, but MKUltra was like a CIA mind control program that was done in the 60s, and they had experiments on humans or volunteers uh, that were supposed to identify and develop drugs that could be used for interrogations in order to weaken the individual and force confessions through mind control. And they had like a numerous methods to do this. But, they, but one of the things is they gave you high doses of LSD and other chemicals, along with electroshocks, hypnosis, sensory deprivation, isolation, things like that. But this research was done at colleges and at universities, hospitals, um, even some prisons as well. But mostly it was like volunteer-based um, where they did this. Whereas the Oak Ridge program that we're about to talk about was quite a bit different. And so I could see people being against the Oak Ridge program. You know? um, they, used, they also used LSD in their experiments, but they used it for therapy. However, their patients were chained together and they were naked. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, definitely a bit <laughs> different than uh, MKUltra. Um, before we get into it, I want to give a shout out to Sophie, who suggested the topic on the Discord. I got to say, it warms my cold black Jewish heart when listeners suggest cool topics that we haven't done on the show before. Yeah, I'd never heard of this before Sophie put it up. We've got a lot of cool women that listen to this podcast, and Sophie is just one of them. She yeah, it's cool. I mean, we have a section on the Discord with show suggestions, and so every now and then I'll kind of flip through it. I'd be like, oh, that that looks interesting. So she just read a book about this nude LSD therapy, and I was like, I think we might have to talk about this on the show. Yeah. So the Oak Ridge program was that what took place at the Oak Ridge Asylum, and I'm going to butcher this name, but I'm going to give it a try. Um, it's in Penetanguishene, Ontario. So it's a it's a uh, asylum that was in Canada. So there it is. That's an old picture of it. But yeah, it, it started in uh, August 15th, 1904. This Asylum for the Insane in Penetanguishene officially opened on the grounds of the former reformity, Reformatory for Boys, which is like a boys' reformatory that used to be there that burned down. Um, the first admission consisted of 50 patients who were transferred from the Asylum for the Insane in uh, Mimico, which I guess was... I don't even know how to say these names. Etobicoke, Ontario. I don't know how to say these names. I think you're doing very well. They got to be in like Inuit names or something. Um, 
And this institution is now known as the Regional Division of the uh, Waypoint Center for Mental Health Care. And it's remained in continuous operation. I don't think they do the experiments, you know, the naked LSD experiments anymore, but it's definitely, you know, still in operation. Um, In 1933, the first four wards of the new building, Oak Ridge, were constructed. And these were originally intended to provide custodial care to the criminally insane. So people who are not guilty by reason of insanity. And it was the only institution of its kind in Canada at that time. So here's, this is a picture of actually the boys' reformatory. Although they do look like they might be insane. So maybe they were criminally insane. Um, so during this period, uh, they, they changed the name of the institution to the Ontario Hospital. So prior to 1933, mentally disordered offenders were shunted around the province to all these different locations. But finally now they had a facility at Oak Ridge um, where these people could, be live, where could live and they could be treated. Um, so it was known as the Criminal Insane Building. Some people just called it the new building. <laughs> That's a cool name. That's like something that would have that would be around in Gotham and the Joker, like Arkham. Arkham, yeah, yeah, yeah. The CIB. So I think yes. I have a picture of what it looks like now, but it's still around. Yeah, there it is. It's a pretty large facility. Is that like what it's, is that like a tennis, a tennis court? court? Yeah, a wonderful tennis court. And I wonder if they have like a swimming pool or something like that as well for the summer months in this maybe this blue building here. So their so their treatments were pretty cutting edge and progressive at the time, very unique in terms of other psychiatric treatments in Canada as well as the U.S. Uh, between 63, 1963 and 1977, half of the patient population at Oak Ridge were engaged in what became known as the Oak Ridge Program. So there, half of them were in this therapeutic community model where patients directed their own treatment, which is kind of odd. <laughs> So that's kind of like, I can't remember the name of the school. It's in Oregon where um, Matt Groening went, but it's like a progressive school where you pick your subjects and you can kind of like teach each other. There's like I mean, progressive yeah, I, schools like that. I mean, a similar concept, but just make it for criminally insane people. Just make it, you know, yeah, make it for insane people and let them choose their treatment. Well, the con- I mean, this is, you know, the 1960s. So it's like, obviously they were looking for alternative forms of therapy. And so the concept behind the therapeutic community is a shift in power. Instead of staff telling patients, you know, how they're going to be treated, the responsibility was given to the patients themselves. So patients determined their own rules for the ward. They gave out punishments to those within the group who deviated from certain parameters that they established themselves. Uh, Patients were encouraged to speak freely of their feelings or emotions without any fear of repercussion. So, yeah, I mean, the, the patients, it was kind of like the lunatics are running the asylum. The asylum, I was sense, just thinking you know? that. This is not going to end well, is it? Well, the th- you know, they didn't initiate this uh, form of therapy. It actually kind of developed towards the end of the Second World War for use with injured soldiers by a, uh, a famous British psychiatrist named Dr. Maxwell Jones. Um, the model was adopted into a number of mental hospitals and correctional facilities right after the Second World War. And, uh, I mean, he described, Jones described it as uh, being increasingly encouraged for use with patients who were suffering from psychopathic personality disorders because it allowed them to kind of take control of their own treatment and speak their mind, you know, in a sense, without fear of being, you know, any kind of repercussions or consequences. So the, there are four phases, I guess, at Oak Ridge. So between the 60s and the 70s, 
there were four phases of treatment that occurred. So phase one was the therapeutic community. And this is the, you know, the model where the patients elected amongst themselves a council of 12, which included a chairman and a vice chairman. So you had all these criminally insane people say, you're the chairman, you're the vice chairman. And the ward councils would all meet every two weeks and they'd discuss all the policies on their respective wards. And staff maintained the ultimate power to approve or disapprove final decisions. But generally, I mean, they gave the ward free range, you know, to run everything. So literally it was, yeah, literally it was the lunatics are running the asylum. Um, One ward council, they just gave a couple examples here in the article I read. A one ward council discussed the problem of dangerous weapons being smuggled onto the ward. And after much argument, they passed a motion that if patients became aware of a weapon, it was their duty to confiscate it any way they saw fit. That's not going to end well. (laughs) (laughs) Another ward decided that patients should only intervene to save the life of a volunteer or student nurse, not the life of another patient or staff. That's also not going to end well. (laughs) Why are they letting them do this? Why? So this new structure was radically different from the authoritarian model, you know, that characterized traditional institutionalization. Um, But I mean, they felt that this would benefit patients and give them the responsibility, you know, put them, you know, the onus to learn responsibility so that they can, you know, when they were released back in the community, they had these skills, you know, they weren't just like waited on, you know, or subservient to other people. But it's not going to help them. You're letting them live without rules and boundaries in a way that normal well, society has. Yeah, but you're giving them responsibility to establish their own rules rather than being forced but by an we authoritarian don't, but we power. We don't have that in society. We have rules. We don't. We can't go and make our own rules inside of a society that already has a rule. Well, I think part of this, though, it sounds like you know they didn't have ultimate authority. It's like the doctors, the staff, the pa- you know had authority, so you had to you know, exists within the confines of a structure of rules. However, they gave them some responsibility to make their own decisions about certain things, which I would could be considered this board of doctors. It <laughs> could be there. considered a good or a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but this environment at Oak Ridge in the early 60s was primed for new ideas. You know, I think they were, I think they were tired of the authoritarian regime and the, uh, authoritarian conception of uh, how to how to treat patients and so I think they were like you know let's let's try you know new ideas and new forms of psychotherapy and so with patients determining their own ward policies and helping to fil- facilitate their own psychotherapy sessions amongst themselves you know it gave them you know also not to mention uh, you know allowed the uh, patients to have different connections with different you know different individuals um, almost like even a doctor-patient relationship, but it gave them uh, cost benefits as well. If you think about it, you didn't need as much. I uh, didn't need as many doctors in there. Have the patients do the work. Good point. Yeah. Good point, Reagan. There's some. There's or we could some just, thinking. Or we could just close it down entirely and just let them back into society. Well, now that's what Reagan did. Um, cost too much. Phase two was the social therapy unit. So the therapeutic community formed the basis of what was known as the at Oak Ridge as the Social Therapy Unit, the STU. Um, 
And so what this was is it, they, they focused on enabling communication. So the premise was held that mental illness and particularly personality disorders grew from an inability on the part of the individual to adequately communicate their thoughts to themselves and to others. And so the patient population of the wards of the STU, Social Therapy Unit, was mostly comprised of younger men in their late teens to early 20s. Primary diagnoses in the wards was a mix of personality disorders, especially psychopathy and schizophrenia. So they were psychopaths, schizophrenics, all lived together in a happy community. Yeah, I was going to say, all just <laughs> mixing together. So it was during this time that a, uh, a famous doctor, famous psychiatrist, Dr. Elliot Barker, arrived. I think we've got a picture of him. We do have a picture of Elliot Barker. Oh, wrong way. Oh, no. There's oh, okay. the inside. Yeah, here's a the, picture uh... of the, uh, the inside of, um, it looks so welcoming, so homely. All the boys, yeah. all the boys in their lovely 60s, 70s fashions. And here's there Elliot. he is. There's Dr. Elliot Barker. Um, so the STU was defined primarily by the vision of this man, uh, Dr. Elliot Barker, and also the superintendent of uh, Oak Ridge, Dr. Barry Boyd. Um, Barker came to Oak Ridge in 1965. Apparently he and his wife, Julie, uh, went on a tour of institutions around the world and trying to learn oh. uh, different techniques of therapy techniques. And, and, and he took all of this and he brought this new vision here to uh, Oak Ridge. Um, he was more than happy to continue on with the ward councils that Boyd had initiated. And together they began to add to the programming. So phase three, the Oak Ridge experiment comes into its own. So the social therapy unit at Oak Ridge started taking on its own identity right after Barker showed up. Um, they did group psychotherapy sessions. They had a committee. They had council meetings. Uh, these sessions encouraged uh, confrontation among the patients in order to push individuals to contribute more. Like con participation was mandatory in these sessions. And some of the sessions ranged from like supportive to like anxiety arousing. Like they would provoke the people, you know, to uh, participate in these sessions, like screaming at each other, trying to provoke and cause them to be emotional rather than just like, you know, isolate themselves. Uh, patients who refused attendance were forcibly brought to all sessions and prevented from leaving. Any patient who was deemed at risk of suicide or self-harm was physically handcuffed to another patient who became responsible for ensuring their safety and continued participation in the program. So <laughs> you had some problems. This problem. does not seem kosher <laughs> at all. I just find it funny. It's like, so you got a bunch of psychopaths, you got a bunch of schizophrenics. Let's handcuff them together, put them in a room, and force them to be in this, like, particularly, like, emotional therapy, you know? And if we think you're super emotional and you might be killing yourself, well, we're going to force you. <laughs> I don't want to go to Oak Ridge. No, no, no. So they kind of moved through all the different wards. There was, like, wards A through H. So when they first came in, they would enter ward, ward H and they'd be indoctrinated the vocabulary and the psychological concepts of the program. And then, uh, then they'd kind of make their way through all the different wards. Now, the ward I want to focus on here is uh, ward G and F, these two wards. So this is where they started experimenting or brought, I guess, mind-altering drugs into the treatment program here. So Fun. This keep in mind though, I, you know, this is like the milieu of all this. This is the 1960s. LSD 
was kind of relatively new at the time. I mean, people had been experimenting on it, but it was it was you know relatively new, especially being used as, to treat patients. It was um, legal as well, wasn't it? When did um, when did Nixon make it illegal? Was it sixty nine? Yeah, I think all these drugs were legal at this time. Yeah, LSD yeah. was a legal drug. And it um, wasn't just they they weren't just using LSD for these therapeutic treatments. There was a range of mind altering drugs that were being used. So this all started around 1966. G ward patients began to receive injections of uh, sodium amytal, a drug best known as a sort of a truth serum. Um, to ward off the sedative properties of the drug, they were then giving given the stimulant methadrine. Meth. Um, so in their drug-induced state, the patients would then be interviewed by other patients. And then several months later, they added uh, scopolamine, which is a drug with similar properties to sodium amytal that caused confusion and a lowering of inhibitions, also administered to the patients, I, I think, to, to induce them to, um, to lose their inhibitions and participate more and share more um, and speak more freely. Well, you certainly do that on meth. Yeah, <laughs> you speak a lot. Um, February 1967, Dr. Barker started giving his patients lysergic acid diethylamide, LSD-25, colloquially known as acid. And now acid had been already used in Canada at other psychiatric hospitals. Uh, the Allen Memorial Institute in Montreal and the Saskatchewan Mental Hospital in Weyburn both used it as a potential treatment for alcoholism. And is a drug which could provide insight to the mind of a person who is suffering from hallucinations. So give them a drug that gives you more hallucinations. Hallucinations, brilliant. <laughs> you know, this is like the primo acid as well. I'm, I'm quite jealous. Oh, yeah, this is this like, was like what Timothy Leary, you know, was tripping was on. I know. I kind of a small part of me is a bit like I want to be there for this acid. God, I don't I'd know. be queuing up for it. I don't think I can handle this acid. Yeah, it's not, my favorite not at drug. my age. I'd be, I'd be happy to be there. Although I do like to be outside when I'm on acid. So I wouldn't like the whole chained. chained you don't want to be nude, so. chained to a psychopath? No, I, don't, I wouldn't enjoy it. <laughs> Sounds like it's going to be a great trip. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't only just that, though. It was Dr. Barker, Elliot Barker's idea to um, create the total encounter capsule. This is on the F word. Um, this, was, this was designed initially as an attempt to overcome the problem of the escapist role-playing of the articulate psychopath. And I think that's part of it, is a lot of these guys would... They're intelligent people. A lot of psychopaths were. Some, some were, some weren't. But a lot of them were, were so able to hide their true feelings and hide their emotions. So it was hard to get a, like a true read well, on these people. That's what's dangerous about a psychopath, is that they have no emotions... But so they can fake what it. he's trying to do, exactly. So what he's yeah. trying to do is to make them actually feel real emotions for the first time. And so what he did. That's what I think. What he did is he put him inside the total encounter capsule. Now think about, think about having you being, you know, with a head full of LSD being in this situation. The capsule was a specifically designed eight by 10. So eight feet by 10 feet windowless chamber at the end of the F1 corridor which all distractions, books, television, music, everything had been removed. It featured a one-way mirror through which participants inside the capsule could be continually observed. Bright lights were kept on the, pace, on the uh, participants at all time of the day. So you had no idea if it was day or if it was night. You know, this is so, like being in solitary in jail. In a sense, but you're, with, you're not solitary. You're with like 
four or five other people. In an, an op- eight by ten cell. And then there was an open toilet. And there was liquid food that was made available through straws in the wall. Gross. <laughs> what, what type of food? Like blamanges, soups? Um, just it's, pouring out through a straw? It was liquid food like soups, milkshakes, tea, coffee, cocoa. That's disgusting. Through the wall. Eat your food the through a straw. Oh, that's gross. That's way worse than the toilet. It was soundproof, windowless, continually lighted and ventilated. So, I mean, it didn't smell that bad. Um, there was a soft rug over, over a foam floor and yeah, all the essentials were there. Liquid food dispensers. There was a washing and toilet facility, but it was open. So you had to watch everybody using it. You know, there's no privacy here. And there was a group, it would be a, a group of up to seven patients who would live there for days at a time. Some Get people in there for a month. Cell. Yeah. No. <laughs> the capsule group was under constant observation. So they had like a closed circuit television. Um, they had an audio amplifying system. And there's that one-way mirror where patient observers, so these were patients, other patients that were observing these patients who were in the, uh, in the capsule that were trained for this full-time job. So, you know, they, uh, they had eight-hour shifts and they had a wide variety of duties, keep the supply of the liquid food coming, regulating Gross. the temperature of the capsule, I record on videotape any interaction that's deemed significant enough to replay for for uh, the staff, and then they also uh, kept a continuous record, and then would intervene if there's any like physical acting out that might occur, which I imagine that had to have happened quite frequently. Yeah, if your body is full of meth and acid, you are going to be wanting to get about. So they wanted the patients to be in the capsule with nothing, like stripped bare, literally. Naked, no clothing at all. And they were confined within the space for, yeah, periods of between two to four months, several weeks at a time in there. The expectation, now here's the idea, the thought process behind it, is once they were free of all distractions within this capsule environment, they would shed their inhibitions and share their thoughts freely with the group. Um, So now the, the first thing you hear about this is like, okay, there's a lot of weird things going on. (laughs) <laughs> they're in this capsule, they're drinking shots on the wall, but why are they naked? Like, why are they nude? And so this comes down to also another 60s philosophy, nude therapy. So this wasn't, you know, Dr. Barker didn't make this up. He was inspired by an American psychologist named Paul Bindram. So uh, I think we have a, a picture. There's Paul, pervert, looks like a pervert, sex pest. So this began in the 1960s. Um, Paul Bindram set up a therapy group at a hotel in Palm Springs in California. He charged $100 for people to spend the weekend in a group of participants, during which they would take part in a number of group therapy techniques completely naked. The idea was that nudity would free people from social constraints and unlock a window into their mind and soul. That was popular at the time, though, being hippies, you know, being free. But I must say, $100 in 1960s money, it was cheaper to go see Elvis. Yeah, I think I'd prefer to do that. Well, me too. Elliot heard about these uh, nude psychotherapy sessions that were going on in Palm Springs. I think we have some pictures of some of the sessions, actually. Um, So it was kind of like a high-class resort. You know, and Palm Springs is kind of, yeah, there they are, all naked, hugging each other, probably all singing songs. All these hippies, these hippies who are going to name all their children like Moonflower, Star, 
stargazer. We're all these, be called stuff like that. But these weren't just like you know regular people. A lot of these people, and they're all strangers for the most part. Most of them were upper class California free thinkers and movie stars, and uh, they would he would encourage them to eyeball each other and then hug and wrestle, and then the and oftentimes in the dark, and they would play a lot of new age music in the background, and they would sit naked in a circle like we just saw and perform a meditation like hum. And then dive headlong into a 24-hour nonstop nude psychotherapy session um, where they would scream and yell and sob and confess their innermost fears and anxieties. You're just describing tantric sex. The whole being nude and looking into each of us eyes is like stage one tantric sex. Are you screaming and yelling and sobbing while you're having tantric sex? I think that comes later after the orgasms. But this is, uh, yeah, this is very close to what tantric sex is. After the rohypno wears off. Uh, Physical nakedness, Benjamin would explain, facilitates emotional nakedness and therefore speeds up psychotherapy. One of his most divisive ideas here is what he termed crotch eyeballing. Uh He'd instruct a participant to sit in the center of the circle with their legs just wide open in the air. And then he'd command the others to stare at the person's genitals and anus, sometimes for hours, while he yelled, (laughs) this is where it's at. This is where we are so damn negatively conditioned. (laughs) What a way to spend your weekend in Palm Springs. Just Why don't they bring back this therapy? Asshole and pussy. <laughs> with, and like, fit, so... with your negative connotations about about their their asshole and pussy. With some insane psychotherapist just screaming at you, this is where it's at. Wow. Um, so Fun Elliot, times. you know, was obviously inspired by this form of therapy. And he deduced that the psychopaths and schizophrenics were burying their insanity deep beneath a facade of normality. So there was this layer of normality that was hiding the psychopathic behavior. And if the madness could only somehow be elevated to the surface, maybe it would work itself through and they could be reborn as empathetic human beings. So he was giving them feelings. He was teaching them how to feel, feel. teaching them how to be empathetic. The alternative I can see is how stark, that would though. maybe work for the psychopaths, but how is that going to work for the schizophrenics? Yeah, well, I mean, maybe with medication, you could control it. You know, but I mean, isn't the problem with, with schizophrenics that they have way too much emotions because they've got, you know, 10 people living inside of them? So do they not need to, like, maybe have their emotions calmed down instead of... Well, what? I think they just need some Thorazine. Um, but unless so, unless their personalities could be radically altered, these young men were destined for a lifetime of incarceration. They're going to be in Oak Ridge for the rest of their lives. But he wanted to rehabilitate them and let them out, you know, return to society as productive members. So he sought permission from the Canadian government to obtain a large batch of LSD that was produced in a government-sanctioned lab. So you know that shit was strong. It was the powerful. best stuff. Yeah. Uh, Connaught Laboratories at the University of Toronto. He handpicked a group of psychopaths uh, that were selected on the basis of verbal ability, and most were relatively young and intelligent offenders between the age of 17 and 25. He then set up these small rooms with bright green walls that he called the Total Encounter Capsules. And at first, they were in, you know, naked, given LSD for about 11 days, and they were encouraged to, like, you know, scream, claw the walls and just divulge their deepest desires. 
You know, there are no beds in there. So they were forced to you sleep be, on a small rug over a foam mat. You would mat. be clawing the walls. You're trapped inside a room for 11 days. Yeah, like handcuffed out, to out other men, straw. naked men. Doesn't this sound like the worst trip ever? This sounds like the worst jail ever. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> there are no towels. There are no private washroom facilities. The sum total of facilities was one open toilet and one wash basin. This is inhumane. <laughs> Even for the 60s. And this is, again, this, yes, I know they're psychopaths, but these people have been judged by, you know, a jury of their peers to go here to rehabilitate. This, well, is, I mean, this is insane, man. They, quote unquote, volunteered for it. But we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Oh. The early reports were gloomy, kind of negative. The atmosphere inside the capsule was tense. Don't say. Big surprise there. <laughs> Psychopaths would stare angrily at one another. Days would go by when nobody would say a word. Some non-cooperative wow. prisoners, keep in mind, they're on a lot of acid. Some non-cooperative prisoners especially resented being forced by their fellow psychopaths to attend a sub-program where they had to intensively discuss their reasons for not wanting to intens- intensively discuss their feelings. Others took, ex- took exception to being forced to wear little girl-type dresses, <laughs> which, which was a psychopath-devised punishment for non-cooperation. So keep in mind, these are ward councils. There are other psychopaths who are in charge of psychopaths. And so one of their forms of punishment for not participating was, you got to wear this little girl dress. You know, that's what Charles Manson's mom did, did to him. And Hemingway, she's, a bunch of people. She sent him to school in a dress. And look how Charles Manson turned out. Like, it, it, why? Why are they letting them do this? The whole thing, for all the good intentions, just looked doomed for failure. Do so, you think there's good intentions here? I think there's idiotic intentions. Um, I read this, uh, so one of the books that was about this experiment, a uh, pretty good one, John Ronson wrote a book called The Psychopath Test, and he interviewed a lot of prisoners who actually were you know, patients in these experiments. Uh, this guy named Steve Smith said, I remember Elliot Barker coming into my cell. He was charming, soothing. He put his arm around my shoulder. He called me Steve. It was the first time anyone used my first name in there. He asked me if I thought I was mentally ill, and I said I thought I wasn't. And he said, well, I'll tell you. I think you're a very slick psychopath. I want you to know that there are people just like you in here who have been locked up more than 20 years. But we have a program here that can help you get over your illness. So there I was, only 18 at the time. I'd stolen a car, so I wasn't exactly the criminal of the century. And I was locked in a padded room for 11 days with a bunch of psychopaths. A lot of us high on uh, scopolamine just type hallucinogenic, and they're all just staring at me. And he asked them, well, did they say anything to you? He goes, they said that they were there to help me. And he said, well, what was your single most vivid memory of your days inside the, uh, the capsule? He said, I went in and out of delirium. One time when I regained consciousness, I saw that they had strapped me to Peter Woodcock. And he... Oh. <laughs> He has, we'll, we'll get to a little more on Peter in a second. He, you but do the, not want to be strapped to Peter Woodcock. John Ronson asked him, like, who's Peter Woodcock? And he said, why don't you go look it up? Peter Woodcock was born March 5th, 1939. He's a Canadian serial killer and child rapist who murdered three young children in Toronto when he was still a teenager. He was apprehended in 1957, declared insane, and placed in Oak Ridge. 
And so he said, why were you strapped to this child murderer? He said, he was my buddy, making sure I got through the drug trip safely. He said, did he say anything to you? He goes, he said he was there to help me. The way that Elliot went about this, putting, you know, he was the smooth and slick psychopath to me, enticing in this poor 18-year-old coffee. He sounds more like a psychopath. Maybe well, Elliot. The, I mean, that's the worst part. It's like, this. you notice when you have a trip in a group, you want to choose, you want to be pretty selective about who you're you tripping with because be you want to make sure you're selective. not going to trip with somebody who's going to flip the fuck out and ruin everybody's you know, buzz. Good times. Yeah. You know, yeah. And they, you never know. You, you could have somebody who's never done acid. I don't want to trip with somebody who's the first time doing acid. You know? Oh, no. I think it's fine to trip with the first time person. Um, but you should always just be aware if you are taking acid and you don't like the situation, get your hell out, get out of it. There's nothing that should keep you there. But these people can't leave. I They're can't even count together. how many times someone's girlfriend was like, I want to do acid too. Next thing you know, she's crying for like four hours. And then the guy's like, I got to take care of her. And then they're, they're both freaking out. And then I'm like, I'm out of here. Go walk around the park. I have, yeah, I've left acid parties because I'm just like. Take off. I, because you know? people are being like that. It's just like, you just get the inner urge. You're like, nah, I'm, I'm not hanging around for this. Not having, I've spent money on this trip. But these people, they can't do that. <laughs> yeah, you'd be chained to a child murderer. Yeah. <laughs> A vicious um, child murderer, too. But the weird thing is, though, in time, a lot of these people had, like, positive effects, seemingly positive effects from this treatment. These tough young psychopaths, these, these young prisoners who have murdered people, started changing, you know, their personalities, learning to care for one another inside the capsule. One prisoner told another, I love the way you talk. And there was real tenderness in his voice. You just let it flow from you as if you own all the words in the world. They're this your personal property talk. and you make them dance for you. <laughs> I would hate to have doc like documents of what the shit I say on acid. I would not want anyone writing it down. Yeah, they're recording it. You're being videotaped, you know? Yeah. Oh, how embarrassing um, the next day. Elliot's psychopaths started becoming gentle. Some are even telling their parole boards that I don't want to be released until after I've completed the therapy. And the authorities were kind of shocked. You know, patients never request not to be let out. You know, but there was hope now that these patients are breaking out of their psychological prisons of indifference to the feelings of others. And a prison that to a greater or lesser extent confines us all. So these people were being made well again. People who had killed or raped while mental mentally ill were now becoming safe trustworthy and useful members of society. Oh, so it appeared. So it appeared. And so, yeah, a lot of, uh, you know, during the first six months of operation at the capsule, there are 47 patients. Two-thirds of the participants expressed a definite desire to re-enter the capsule and repeat the program again. 27% said they definitely would not want to do this. And 7% yeah. were undecided. Do you think they wanted to maybe do the capsule just because it's a bit of a, it is obviously a break from the routine of, because if you're locked in a place like Oak Ridge for 20 years, 20, 20 years plus, it's it is like the drugs. And they also like the drugs. I know. Like, I think maybe they were responding the favorably to the treatment. Yeah, I think they're responding favorably to acid. <laughs> I think they're responding favorably to the treatment. 
The administration of the mind-altering intravenous drugs, keep in mind, these were taken intravenously. So they were like, you know, in acid injections, liquid acid injections. Um, the administration was done by patients who determined who would receive the injection, how much, and when it would be administered. What? <laughs> so the, psych- the other psychopaths that are watching them are, are kind of like, like, give more acid. Oh, he needs he needs another speedball. And he, oh, give John Belushi another speedball. I think there. he Is wants that- some methadrine. Let's give him a little more scopolamine. <laughs> These are the laziest doctors of all time. Not this only are they not doing the therapy madness. sessions, they, they have the patients administering the drugs. The drugs. None of them are trained phlebotomists. I can guarantee you that. Yeah, so the, a lot of them were given uh, massive doses of LSD, um, injected, you know, uh, intravenously, and then also given them a combination of methadrine, you know, which is an amphetamine. It was a truly radical milestone at the time. The world's first ever marathon nude psychotherapy session for criminal psychopaths. Wow. <laughs> Even Woodstock didn't go on for 11 days. <laughs> yeah, on acid. Well, there are a lot of naked hippies at that. So now we get into phase four here, the uh, Barker-Meyer handoff. So Barker eventually moved on. He left Oak Ridge. Uh, but the STU uh, was continued by a psychiatrist named Dr. Gary Meyer, and I think I have a picture of him. I do. So in contrast oh, to Barker... It. Oh, yeah, here's another psychopath. <laughs> I don't know if he's on acid in this picture. <laughs> But, well, no, because he's not naked and he's not chained up. And he's not in the capsule, yeah. So this is just another hallway shot over at the at Oak Ridge. There he I is. Do like, I do like the capsule name, I must admit. Um, Dr. Gary Meyer right here. So in contrast to Barker's press shirts and more traditional, you know, Dr. Demeanor, here you have long-haired Meyer, who oftentimes would walk around barefoot, and he had a more free-form approach. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> How can it get more freeform, D? It seems like it's at the pinnacle of freeform right now. Oh, it can. What? Um, <laughs> Gary Meyer still, to this day, looks back on these days fondly. He said these are the oh, best no. days of his life. And oh, he knew no, how Gary. to make these men well. And he, uh, he honestly believes, and this is what he said, you know, in the trials that are going on right now. Give me like a... Uh, uh, a little foreshadowing. Um, he honestly believed that we were doing a job that most Canadian psychiatrists couldn't do. He's like, we were taking psychopaths on a journey into uncharted waters, like a dream group. Such a hippie. People dream, and I wanted to capture what was going on in their dreams. So before they went to bed, I'd have them hold hands and say, let me experience my dream life in this community. And then they would quietly go to sleep and dream. That sounds <laughs> awful. That sounds worse than being naked in a room for 11 days, having to hold hands with somebody and say that little mantra. I would put me in that room. And Get when me they awoke, they'd head straight to the dream group, which consisted of an equal number of psychopaths and schizophrenics. And they would all yes, just talk about mixture. their vivid dreams. <laughs> oh my word. This is kind of interesting, though. Um, He was saying uh, schizophrenics dreamed in color. The more intense a dream, the more likely it's going to be in color. But psychopaths, if they manage to dream at all, only in black and white. 
And Gary knows this, does he, for a fact. Psychopaths who never lie about anything ever to appease you. That's what he said. <laughs> um, would not be lying right to your face, Gary. So now the breaking point of, uh, of the program here came in 1975. So Barker had left at, at this point. Meyer was in charge. Meyer thought that it'd be a good idea to orchestrate a mass psychedelic trip on one of the wards. So a group of 26 men were each injected with 300 micrograms of LSD. Wow. His intention was to encourage a collectively shared experience of self-knowing among among a group of diagnosed psychopaths and schizophrenics. Instead, it uh, heralded the demise of this decade-old program. (laughs) Didn't it, you know, doesn't that sound like a great idea? (laughs) Let's Let's round them all up. Get them all naked I give him 300 micrograms of LSD. So I had to look this up, actually, because I was like, is 300 micrograms, is that a lot or is that a little? Like, do you even know? I think that like feels that like a Well, to me, that feels like a lot because you would get one little tab of paper and you put one drop. But is one drop of one microgram? Like, I, I didn't really know. Oh, like, yeah. It, like, I didn't really like know how liquid. to measure it. So I but went this is to. Primo. Well, yes. I went to trippingly.net to see the Ooh, LSD dosage guide here. So typically, a typical average LSD experience is between 75 micrograms to 150. And this is just a regular one. And this is probably all the acid trips we've done. Um, and you get all the phases of the LSD experience, you know. At lower range, you might get the breathing effect, the strong psychedelic colors, the mild you know, visual hallucinations where things appear slightly distorted. The higher end of the range, 150 micrograms, Full hallucinations with the objects with objects appearing that don't exist, uh, substantial distortion of actual objects. You know, like breathing walls. You know, swaying of objects like trees, cartoon-like images. Oh, the fun! You know. The fun times, dude. They're all coming back to me. <laughs> <laughs> then there's the 150 to 200 micrograms. Beautiful colors everywhere. Stronger visual hallucinations overall. Uh, Closed-eye visuals are very apparent. Life-changing spiritual experiences may occur. Strong anxiety may also occur. Then there's 200 to 300 micrograms. The peak of this trip can be very intense and very scary. Uh, Once the peak effects are over, a state of contentment may follow. Sense of self remains intact, but irrational thoughts and obsessive thought patterns often arise, including thought loops or looping. Strong panic about one's own safety or the safety of other of loved ones may occur. And closed eye visuals are very strong at this dose. And now when you're at 300 to 400 micrograms, loss of sense of self, um, self slash ego dissolution begins. Strong visuals, standard logic does not apply at this point. Visuals are extremely intense, very difficult to walk or understand normal day-to-day activities. And then there's like the 500, 400 to 500 microgram. It's like time stops. <laughs> Sense yeah. of self is gone. Full ego dissolution is possible. Body movements, very difficult, very disorienting. No longer able to form rational thoughts as one in- enters a temporary psychotic state. Not generally pleasant. Very intense visual hallucinations and uh, closed eye hallucinations may be overwhelming. So you're he every Grateful Dead fan there. <laughs> he gave 26 naked psychopaths and schizophrenics 300 micrograms. 
That's wow. intense. That's intense. So after that happened, he got a memo from the superintendent who was like, you know, there's been some concern here uh, from the unit directors and some of the staff that the use of LSD as an experimental research tool maybe should be uh, scaled back a bit. You know, maybe we should just not use this in, uh, so, so we need to de-escalate these aspects. But he continued, and he upped it. Now he was doing 40 patients, mass On the LSD same trips. Dose. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then the other thing he allowed them to do, he didn't keep them in the capsule. He let them wander the entire facility. Oh, so, no. Oh, no. <laughs> by guy. letting these patients wander the ward in a psychedelic trance, it was too much for the staff to deal with. Like, could you imagine? You could not pay me enough for that. Naked oh, lunatics. So running around under the influence of like strong hallucinogenic drugs. I'd rather work at Subway. I would rather work at Subway. This would be so, imagine, you know, you're coming into work, you're about to start a 12 hour shift and you're walking into that. I'd just say, I don't feel well. Get in my car and go home. In this interview this. I read here with uh, Ronson, he says in hindsight, I might've gone a <laughs> bit too far. Might've been a little hard Maybe? of darkness. Yeah. <laughs> he said, you know, We'd give these guys LSD, they'd have these marathon weekends, and they'd change. And they'd go back to the general ward that wasn't ready for the change, they'd be swatted right back. Two steps forward, two steps back. If only the entire ward, every psychopath in the whole place, could achieve the same metaphysical enlightenment at the same time, everything would be great. A mass LSD trip. It was radical, but it was critical. The only way to break down the deep pathology of the ward. He says he saw it as the culmination of everything that he had done. You know, given everyone, you know, give everyone the rite of passage of LSD at the same time. Did he read Helter Skelter and was like, (laughs) this is a good idea? Because that's what it sounds like. This sounds like Charlie on a nighttime being like, we're all going to take the same trip now, guys. Get ready. Well, the best part is security staff was like, no, this is not a good idea. And he's like, just leave him alone. Just leave him alone. Let him be. So the guards were really pissed off. And they were forced to stand back as like 40 serial killers and rapists just ran around en masse their, off their tits on LSD. Um, and so he said, you know, I probably didn't play my cards properly there. You know, I think the guards oh, lost their identity. You know, the union guys were upset about it. And so um, he thought they sabotaged the program, but they raised like serious security concerns. I mean, these, these people were murderers. They were in there because they murdered people. That's why they were in there. They were dangerous, dangerous individuals. Dangerous people. And now they're on, on 300 micrograms stroke. of LSD, strong LSD. And so um, essentially what ended up happening is they complained. And uh, yeah, Meyer was transferred out of the unit. They canned him. Good. I mean, I bet he, it was a great day when he left. I bet nobody <laughs> got him cake. Nobody got him a, you know, we're going to miss you card. I bet they were really happy to see the back of Gary. I would have been. Well, they, you know, dissolved the social therapy unit. So it was all done. No more, no more total encounter capsules. No more LSD treatments. It was all dismantled. So officially done in 1985, following all the negative criticism that they were getting. Um, You know, 
in later years, you know, they went through like you know decades later and uh, did a retrospective evaluation of the STU programming. So it was done by yeah, I think it was done by 1985. The social therapy unit was done, but the uh, thought the uh, total encounter capsule was done by the late 70s. Um, but they went through and they did an evaluation, like a retrospective on what happened. And they saw that some patients who participated in the program were released, had lower levels of recidivism. But the psychopaths who went through the uh, LSD treatment program had much higher rates of recidivism. In fact, oh, they said say. 60 to 80% all reoffended as soon as they, uh, as soon as they were released back into society. Jesus. It's I mean, not surprising. But think about it. Flashbacks being chained naked to insane people. Yeah, that probably would uh, cause me to reoffend. you know? It send you down a darker path than what you were already going to go down. They'd make the shadow people return. <laughs> Jesus. So yeah, 80%. An 80% rate of recidivism. Wouldn't say it worked out all that well. And so there are several um, particular cases. One, Cecil Giles here was declared cured and released after many intensive therapeutic sessions in the total encounter capsule. Within days of release, he grabbed a random 14-year-old girl, sexually assaulted her, and threw her unconscious from a bridge into a creek. She managed to, she, she survived. She crawled to a nearby house and uh, hid. It was found later that night lying on the kitchen floor. She survived, but she has severe scars from like where her head hit the bottom of the, the creek. Ooh. Another uh, patient, Joseph Fredericks, was released from Oak Ridge, 1983. He also went through the, uh, the uh, Total Encounter Capsule program. Uh, within weeks, he attacked a teenage girl with a knife, sodomized a 10-year-old bo- boy. He was then released again a year later, attacked another 11-year-old boy. And after being released four years after that, he headed to a mall called, called Shopper's World, where he abducted and raped another 11-year-old boy. Christopher Stevenson, who wrote a note to his parents saying, Dear Mom and Dad, I'm writing you this note. And that was it. That's, the note stopped after that. It's it oh, getting wow. sodomized. Um, <laughs> when the police caught Fredericks, he showed them the boy's body and he said, He was such a nice boy. Why did he have to die? Oh, wow. <laughs> I suck. Um, but the most discomforting for the program was what happened with the multiple child killer, Peter Woodcock. I think we got a picture of Pete, don't we? Peter is famous. I know his case. So this is the guy that Steve Smith, the car thief, was attached. He woke up attached to him. This is the guy who's going to be his spirit guide through the LSD trip. Can I say he's not unattractive, though? Obviously, in spirit, he is. But, like, uh, he kind of has a look of, like, Matt Damon. I was about to say it looks like Matt Damon. Matt Damon. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of, like, nowadays, this look. He just looks like he's going to, like, see, like, blur live, doesn't he? Kind of. But you can tell just looking at that glazed expression, you just think about raping kids. He's thinking about little children's them. assholes. And murdering yes. them. And murdering them afterwards. Imagine just, like, passing out during an LSD trip, waking up chained to this guy. Uh he gained notoriety um, in the 50s in Toronto for murdering and uh, sodomizing three young children. And then later, in 1991, with this murder of a man named Dennis Kerr. So Woodcock, when he was going through the program, didn't respond well to these treatments. And he was not an ideal prisoner. 
Uh, he engaged in coercive sexual acts, exploited his fellow inmates, who were often much less intelligent or less sane than he was. He had convinced inmates that he had contact with an imaginary gang called the Brotherhood, who were on the outside. And so he would tell these people who, for all intents and purposes, were rotundos, uh, that they could be initiated in the Brotherhood, but they had to perform moral sex and get him cigarettes. That's a, yeah, that's high-functioning sociopathic behavior, isn't it? <laughs> Completely. He was eventually transferred to a less restrictive institution and ultimately arrived at the Broxville Psychiatric Hospital. Here, staff indulged his passion um, for uh, trains by taking him to a Smith's Falls Railroad Museum. They even took him to see Silence of the Lambs. That sounds like a great idea. He's a tra- Right, if he's a train spotter, nonce. Yeah. Uh, then he was uh, he was transferred to Oak Ridge, where he went through the STU, uh, the social therapy unit. During this time, he legally changed his name to David Michael Kruger, and he uh, rekindled the relationship with Bruce Hamill, who is an Ottawa killer, um, who had recently been released from Oak Ridge, and was a security guard at the Ottawa courthouse. Kruger convinced Hamill that the alien brotherhood would solve his problems if he helped him kill another inmate named Dennis Kerr. So in 1991, uh, psychiatrists were like, you know what? We're going to give you your first full release from, uh, from the facility. So he was allowed, he was, he was let go. At this point, he was in Brockville. He was back at Brockville Psychiatric Hospital. And he was let go in 1991. And uh, he had already been through the STU program uh, twice. And so uh, the psychiatrists um, didn't know that he had plans to meet up with Dennis Kerr, uh, who had previously spurned his advances. He invited Kerr into the woods behind the hospital, and there he chopped him 100 times with a hatchet. 100 times? Yeah. uh, During the trial, he said, I did it. I wanted to see what a hatchet would have, uh, uh, the effect the hatchet would have on the body. Um, he died as a result, as a result of uh, chopping injuries to his head and neck. And Ouch. so when he arrived there, Kruger initially didn't just chop him. He hit him on the head with a pipe wrench, and he beat him into unconsciousness. And his buddy, um, possible lover there, Bruce Hamill, is also there. Kruger and Hamill then seized the hatchet and knife that they had hidden and uh, stabbed, stabbed him and hacked him many times, mutilated his body, severed his head, and then sodomized the headless corpse. They took turns. So gnarly. It's like Ed Kemper having a bit of family fun. Um, uh, Woodcock here, Kruger, then left the scene, walked to a police station, and turned himself in. And guess where they sent him? Back to Oak Ridge. (laughs) No, no, no. Yeah. There he was interviewed um, by the BBC, actually, about the murder. It's a great interview. I was looking for it. Um, I was reading about it, but I wanted, to, I wanted to watch it. It's called Mask of Sanity. I couldn't find it. The interview's most painful moment was when Woodstock admitted that uh, Elliot and Gary Meyer's program, Elliot Barker and Gary Meyer's program, was kind of the blame. He said it taught him how to be a more devious psychopath. He said all those chats about empathy were like an empathy-faking finishing school for him. He I said, bet. I learned how to manipulate better and keep the more outrageous feelings under wraps better. So it was almost like an advanced psychopath training school, in a sense. Yeah, I bet it would be. You know? 
So it, it was weird. So at the time, you know, when the, uh, you know, when they first started the social therapy unit and the whole program there at Oak Ridge, I mean, it was groundbreaking and it didn't get a lot of negative attention. I mean, patients were allowed to, you know, engage in therapy sessions with one, of, with one another leading these sessions. And this stood in stark contrast to all the psychiatric portrayals of the period. This is the 60s. This is like during one flew over a cuckoo's nest time, you know? And uh, Frederick Wiseman's controversial 1967 documentary, Titty Cup Follies, um, which is about the Bridgewater Hospital for the Criminally Insane in Massachusetts, which is just a terrible institution. Yes. And so here you had, in Oak Ridge, you had patients running the therapy sessions. You know, patients helping other patients. So it was kind of unheard of at the time. But then as the years progressed, they saw like, you know, the deleterious consequences, the harm that occurred, the recidivism rate. 80% of these people reoffended. I don't think it was really helping them at all. So while so- some patients did actually have successful treatment and thrived in the environment, others argued and infringed on their basic human rights. And in 2001, 20 years ago, a class action lawsuit was filed against the government of Ontario, as well as doctors Elliot Barker and Gary Meyer on behalf of several patients from the program. And just last year, in uh, 2019, or two years ago almost, uh, doctors, um, a judge ruled that, uh, that ruled in a lawsuit that uh, medical doctors had tortured these patients over a 17-year period in unethical and degrading human experiments. Well, of course, it doesn't take a doctor <laughs> to realize that. It just takes a regular person. If you have to feed somebody food through a straw, there you already go. If you don't even have a <laughs> toilet that is covered, there you go. You can sue the hospital for that. Even in the 60s, they should have known that. Well, the justice here, uh, Paul Perel, Perel of the Ontario Superior Court, he said he didn't think the doctors acted out of cruelty or malice, nor did he find that they breached medical standards of the day. But torture is a timeless wrong. And what he did is he tortured these inmates. You know, by exactly what we just said. They were in confinement. They were administered hallucinogens, delirium-producing drugs. They were fed through straws. You know, confined for handcuffed to each other for days on end, naked. In an eight by ten cell. That is tiny. That's like a, a regular jail cell now. And now imagine twelve of you in that room. Couldn't even get up and walk around. They keep Lawyer- chickens better than they keep that. Lawyers for the two doctors, Elliot Barker and Gary Meyer, declined to comment. While the matter is before the court. Um, the next stage is a drawn out lawsuit. You know, it's going to be, they don't know exactly how much money, but there's 31 individuals who are suing and they, don't, they haven't specified what damages they're owed. But I mean, this is going to be, you know, financial damages in the multi millions. And I some of imagine. these recipients are some of the most vile serial killers, psychopaths, and sadists you can even think of. And they're going to cash in suing the government, you know, of Ontario, not to mention this hospital, you know, the Waypoint Center and these doctors themselves. You know, it's interesting, too, that uh, Justice Burrell said that these doctors breach their fiduciary duty, obligations that individuals have when they hold power over another, you know. And so that wasn't and that there is no statute of limitations on this. There is a statute of limitation on medical malpractice but not over, uh, you know, this obligation. I mean, in a sense, it was torture is what happened here. 
Um, uh, yeah, I know you were saying that some of these like the worst psychopaths, but some of these are also just kids who yeah. are in there for stealing cars and who have probably had their lives absolutely ruined and, and then, do deserve money. And then you have this, this, you know, authority figure coming up to you being like, I can help you. You might be and locked 18. up in here for 30 years. I'm going to help you get out of this program. It's like you're 18 years old. So you know, are either of these two doctors going to face time in jail themselves? I think it's a class action lawsuit, so I think it's just financial damages. Yeah, well, that's a shame because they should go and sit in an 8 by 10 cell and be told what to do for quite some time, I feel. They broke the Hipp Hippocratic Oath, the way I see it. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think they intentionally did this out of malice. Like, I don't I think they're trying they to did... torture them. They've done something where even if they can say it, what they've done is also psychotic because in their mind, they've turned around and been like, oh, what I'm doing is helping them. And at no point is anything on this where I could be like, yeah, I can see where they're going with this. This is all it's all torture. He was uh, Dr. Barker wrote a like a, a paper or journal or something on uh, how his treatment differed from the Third Reich experiments. <laughs> If you have to compare your treatment to the Third Reich, if you're already at that point, doctor, then you, there's something wrong here, mate. There's that's something a, wrong. That's pretty much what the judge said. Yeah. Good. Me now, see. You know, I think it would be remiss to say that the psychedelics, the use of psychedelics in treatment all, always has a negative consequence. And I think they're finding that, that now that – um psychedelic assisted therapy is called PAT therapy is being used again. Um, doctors are using like drugs such as MDMA, ketamine, psilocybin, you know, yes. microdosing uh, mushrooms, LSD, and even ayahuasca uh, to treat like uh, an array of mental um, health issues, you know, alcohol dependency, nicotine dependence, anxiety, depression. Um, yeah, but it, they're not giving them 300 milligrams. <laughs> micro, no, it's, it's, you know, yeah. it's, it's definitely uh, managed doses. I know it's Harrison totally was uh, microdosing psilocybin for depression. And he, yes, he found but it. he was, let's take that back though. He was doing that by himself as a, as a man just going, I'm going to take some mushrooms today. It's not like a, a doctor has prescribed him a specific amount of like, you know, medical grade psychobillion every day and said here you go my friend no he wasn't yeah it's not like he had yeah. a prescription for psilocybin but he had like he did study go online and he was like you know yeah measuring out, out doses and yeah. and he was also ex with experimentation realizing that a certain level of uh psilocybin actually made him feel better and less depressed i don't know if he kept kept on with it or not but but that's the thing it's like you know you can't just say like well i gave him lsd that's crazy maybe it was maybe the the setting, the circumstance was a little insane, you know, naked psychopaths. But you see the benefits of giving someone LSD, but yes, in this situation, giving them such large doses of it and then confining them to a tiny cell is there is no part of that where you are not gonna freak out. Exactly. But, you know, it's interesting to see what's gonna happen with psychedelic assisted therapy and what it can be treated, you know, what it oh, can treat in the future and uh, how it can be used going forward. Um, but yeah, uh, hopefully it won't be used, you know, like uh, Dr. Barker and Dr. Meyer used it. You know, God, I can't think of a worse trip. I can't. If somebody said to me, "Oh, are you hungry?" I was like, "Of course," and they said, "Just suck this straw." I, <laughs> I'd rather die. I'm not sucking food for a straw, <laughs> even when I'm an old lady. I'm not doing it, man. 
But go check it out. The Psychopath Test is a pretty interesting book uh, written about these experiments. Uh, People, this is episode uh, 781 here, Sick and Wrong. We have some news stories coming up next. But first, here's a word about our uh, Patreon page. Hey, Sick and Wrong listeners. If you're not currently a Sick and Wrong patron, you might be missing out on special moments like this one. Do they Uh-oh. like shove your face like underneath their balls, like yeah. in their taint? Do they like shove your face in like the fucking in that well, shawl screw? <laughs> yeah, because the way it works at like you know strip clubs I've worked at, like female strip clubs, especially like the nasty, fully nude ones. Yeah, you know, they're on all fours. They, you're if you're putting twenty dollars down, they'll reach back, grab your head. Your head's right in their asshole pussy, just like being I shoved back and forth. Like, does that the- work? At like, is that how? It happens at like the a The Chippendales is a bit different, isn't it? Because you're not tipping the Chippendales. The Chippendales will like have their dance routines and they'll pick victims out, won't they? And oh, and they'll pull you stage. up on stage. And then they're doing their fucking grind in their fucking um, half cocked cocks. Well, I just <laughs> don't think. cocks in your face. I don't think most women want some just random boner. Just, I'm, they probably want don't mind a guy in like a G-string dancing around, but I bet you they don't want like a full boner just slapping against their face. Well, no, it's painful, isn't it? Uh, or That's talking uh, from experience, it's painful. <laughs> For only $5 a month, you can enjoy these special moments. A bonus news story, extra phone calls, and an hour's worth of outtakes every week at patreon.com slash sick and wrong sign up today support the show and keep it sick and wrong but don't you ever think so first story we have here uh, came in from chris chris writes hey d deadly cock in the cock much love chris <laughs> the emails you get are so fascinating yeah <laughs> they're so eloquent you know um <laughs> An Indian man is killed by his own rooster in a cockfight. Yep. Nice. Killed by a cock in a cockfight. The unusual death of a man impaled by his own rooster has drawn attention to illegal cockfighting in India. So I imagine there's several countries where cockfighting is. I didn't realize India, I just never thought India would be a big cockfighting country. Did you know? Of course it is. Well, Whenever you read pictured... the cockfighting stories, they come from India. Oh, it's always Mexico or Southeast Asia. Yeah. Like, I just it's never would have thought. I guess there's... I guess India is not that far from Southeast Asia. Well, it so... is in Asia. Dude. Yeah. So more or less, <laughs> India I guess. is an Asian but it's just, country. It's... But I always think it's like Vietnam is where they do all the cockfighting. I just didn't think India. Yeah. But oh, yeah, you know, so. makes sense. Sure. Um, Kate's gonna hate this one. <laughs> she I will hate birds. this one. I love birds and chickens. Are, chickens are in like my top five birds. I mean, I, love I don't. Chicken. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a big fan of birds, but I don't have the stomach to ever go see a cockfight or a bullfight oh. for that matter. I had a chance when I was in Spain to go see a bullfight, and I was like, my, a couple of my friends are going. And I was like, I'm not gonna go do that. I don't. I, I don't even want to see that. No, I, I would no never. You know, um, when they do that running of the bulls. That stupid ceremony. In Pamplona? Where, yeah, we're all the fucking bro jocks, boys. We Idiots. run from bulls, yo. Whenever the bulls just fucking nail them, I'm like. I love when you see a, a picture of like, you know, in the rare occurrence that a, that a uh, manador oh, yeah. gets gored right in the oh, dick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, I love that. Get or up the bull. ass. You're like, yes. <laughs> yeah, like a horn right up the ass. So a uh, fighter rooster here killed its owner in the southern Indian state of Telangana over the weekend. The victims, a 45-year-old poultry farmer called T. Sathaya. 
He frequently put up his bird up for local illegal cockfights. So he had like a champion bird. He had a fighting bird. His cock um, was like the best cock in town. He had a, yeah, a powerful cock. Very he powerful. bled to death after his cock, Rooster, armed with a seven centimeter long knife strapped to one of its claws. Because that's the thing, you know, they strap little knives and like, barbs and weapons to his claws. It impaled Sathaya in the groin when it struggled Ugh. to free himself. So it sliced his tonsure off. Just straight up. Slice. Like, slice his cock. His tonsure. Cock. I'm proud of this cock. Slice a cock. He's a cock slicing cock. <laughs> this okay. death of uh, Sathaya here gave a peek into how wildly popular and violent cockfighting remains in parts of India, despite it being banned since 1960. Oh, there you go. Yeah, the practice is banned. But in rural India, cockfights are a popular source of entertainment, especially during the winter harvest season. Uh, Raghurama Krishnu Raju, a political leader industrialist from the southern Indian state of Andhra Pradesh, is a big fan. And he's a politician. Um, he says cockfighting has been around for thousands of years. Back in the days, there used to be cockfights between kingdom, like different kingdoms. It's part of our lives. In 2018, Raju sought to end all restrictions on cockfights in the state. And his home district of West Gadarvi is famous for offering the Super Bowl of cockfighting. Oh, my word. <laughs> I never thought I would ever hear a phrase like that. But Well, that's what I was wondering. Like, being that there's cockfighting, obviously, in India and Asia, probably in Russia, I'm sure, and do everything in Russia, uh, Mexico, do they have, like, some kind of World Cup? For the cocks, a cock world cup. World cock. Where you would get on an airplane with your cock, and you, you and your cock would fight under a Yeah, Mexican you'd bring cock. your cock to, like, the different countries. So, like, if India was hosting the world cock cup, you'd bring your cock to the world cock cup, and then they would fight, and you'd get the world cup for cocks. I think it's fighting. this now. I don't think they're as organized as they think they are. This is like dog fighting, isn't it? Well, this is Same the most level. organized I've ever heard. You know, I have I had a friend that went to an LA a cockfighting thing in LA, in East LA. <laughs> so oh, I mean it happens yeah. here, you know, it happens here for yeah. sure. But this is the most organized I've I've ever encountered. A Super Bowl of cockfighting. The Super I mean, that, Bowl of That sounds like a managed event, like an organized Do you, event. Oh my God, can you imagine the little halftime, right? So for the halftime show, do you think it's just really cute chickens in like little cheerleader outfits and they're just like, Maka! and I'm, that's the halftime show. It's just chickens. Well, I was wondering if it's a Super Bowl of cockfighting. I figured they would get like, you know, the bands who would play like Trump's inauguration, like Ted Nugent or Kid Rock <laughs> yeah. to fly out there because they got money, you know? <laughs> Dude, there would be a bean dip and a spinach dip. I'm sure. I'm sure the and... Nuge would play the Super Bowl of cockfighting. You know? I, I want to see the halftime show of all the cute chicks in little cheerleader outfits. He I says, for many people, rearing birds for fights is their only source of income. It's a great sport, but the knives do add the element of cruelty. Without the knives, it should be an acceptable sport. So what? They just rip each other apart with their claws and beaks. Yeah, that's how they, it would be a much longer death. Yeah. Either <laughs> way, I am not approving of cockfighting. I do not approve of this. Like, um, cockfighting in India is actually an elaborate affair. It never, never occurred to me. But it assumes a form of a carnival. There's elaborate battlegrounds 
that are erected. Multi-million dollar bets are placed. Liquor flowing in abundance. And during the bouts, the winner takes home all the prize money and the losing cock dies. You know, the so losing cock dies. You know, I was wondering, like, do they eat the, do they eat them? Do they eat the cock, the ones that die? They will, they probably will, no, because they'll be trained cocks. I imagine they probably have, like, little elaborate funerals for them. They probably sail them down the river Ganges on a cute little, on oh, cute little, like, ply They're very hungry people. It's a third world country. I'm sure they're eating the cocks. Uh, these people won't be eating the cocks if the if it's making them all this money, like this guy. Well, says. no, the ones that die. The, oh the yeah, losers. not the ones that die. But yeah, I yeah. imagine that they have backup cocks for when their cocks die. Raju said the uh, most fascinating peculiarity of cockfights is that this bird is the only one that fights until death. Adding that that's part of the thrill. The cruelty is the thrill. Well, that's, that's all animal fights, isn't it? When you put True a dog. Sadist. When you put a dog in the in the ring against another dog, is it not until death? I don't I don't know I don't know if you know I don't know much about animal fighting, but I you know I've I've uh, you know when I was a kid in high school, we used to get really high and go to the Myers and take the betta fish and pour the betta fish into the other fish tank, and they would just did rip you? each other apart. Yeah, it was great. That is so awful. <laughs> I can't believe you did that. You're the gonna Chinese go to fish hell fish. for that. I love beta fish. They're so friendly and colorful. Why yeah, would you do that? Yeah, we get in a lot of Because they would fight. It was great. This is, this is what happens when boys are unsupervised. <laughs> you always should have one girl in your group to make sure this shit doesn't happen. There was a girl that enjoyed the beta fights. Don't lie. Was she fat and ugly? <laughs> That's why she couldn't... <laughs> I think she was a she lesbian. A she later came out to be a lesbian. But still, yeah. <laughs> she enjoyed the beta fights. Um, but yeah, they, they, they fight until death, and that's what Raju enjoys. Spoken like a true sadist here. Yes, he, he said, the death. I like this part, though. He's like, but people kill birds for food anyway, and that's cruelty. There's some false equivalents going on there. <laughs> yes, mate. Yeah, okay. But Again, I get, try and I, justify it. I get where, the, where he's coming from on that, though. I mean, being a vegetarian, it is cruel, you know. Um, well, yes. But it's not like these birds are in this situation because they're like oh yeah we were once battery farmed hens and now we fight to the death yeah it's like, raised I'm, to fight to the death i'm hope you know i mean I, I still think it's awful that there's factory farming and they're killing animals like that but i'm hoping that it's somewhat humane the way they end these animals lives rather than like putting them in a ring with a bunch of knives like attached to their legs so they can kill each other for a bunch of men's entertainment Screaming. i bet you it's a lot of men at these events Watching the Cox fights. I like this. He said, surely the sport is not as risky as Jolly Katu. Um, that's oh, is that? Indian sport in which men try to grab the hump of a bull's back and hold on to it for entertainment. That should also <laughs> not be allowed. <laughs> what is this like an Indian rodeo? I wonder if they wear cowboy hats. Like, I hope they do. As long, if the bulls aren't getting killed, I would watch Jolly Katu. Seems like there'd no, be more human casualties than animal ones. I don't want to watch that because you know that those bulls aren't kept good. And bulls can be very affectionate animals if you let them. I just what, you know I don't what get scene it. I They're love. just grabbing the humps. You know what scene <laughs> I love in Kingpin when he's like, oh, he gets up early, Woody Harrelson, and he's like, and I went, and he's drinking the milk from the pail, and he's like, oh, I got up early, and I milked your cow. Like, like, we don't uh... have a cow. We only have a bull. <laughs> and he's like, I'm drinking all this milk. 
Animal welfare activists have been denouncing cockfights for decades, and uh, as well as the penalty of 50 Indian rupees for those convicted of animal cruelty. You don't know how much 50 rupees equates to in U.S. dollars? Um, like 50 cents? 68 cents. Right. <laughs> um, so if, if you get yes, uh, but caught... What's their, I was going to say, what is their daily wage, though? Because like, that could be crippling to you if you're not making... I guess, yeah, I don't know what the Indian daily wage is. But cocks aren't the only ones dying from these cockfights. Last year alone, three people were killed by fighter birds. Brilliant. Uh, January 2020, a 50-year-old man was stabbed to death by a fighting blade before a bout. Seems to be a common uh, way to succumb to death by chicken. Another man um, died when the bird's blade cut his ankle. This is in the uh, western Indian state of West Bengal. And then in June, a rooster jockey, I love that term, rooster jockey, a that's rooster what they're jockey. called, uh, bled to death in the southern Indian state of Tamil Nadu after a bird cut his thigh during a bout. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Technically, isn't every man a rooster jockey? Or is every woman, or is every straight woman who has to deal with a cock a rooster jockey? Well, I guess when you're riding a cock, you're, you're a rooster, rooster jockey. jockey. Yeah, I'm going to add that to my um, CV of things I'm good at. Rooster so gambling... Jockey is banned in India, but it's a key part of cockfighting. In uh, Andhra Pradesh, cockfights earn an estimated $130 million a year. That's I mean, crazy. it's huge. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's like, it's a very popular event. And most of the participants are farmers without a, a you know, consistent income. So many of them spend their entire year's income on, you know, training this fighting chicken and buying blades and all this. And hopes that they'll win. I wonder if they give them steroids. Indian, like performance enhancement drugs. You can get any drug in Indian pharmacies. So it would not surprise me if these birds are just loaded up on the steroids. Well, like you see, sometimes you see those pit bulls that are just like you see them around here. Oh, yeah. Well, they're they're just, just ripped. Like these yoked yeah. out pit bulls. So I wonder if the same thing goes with uh, cocks. These are like the pit bulls of the bird world. So most parts of India cockfights are clandestine affairs. But over in, uh, in uh, Andhra Pradesh, these bouts are openly advertised on local newspapers and TV channels. So I mean, it's like a big advertised event. And Indian authorities typically look the other way when a cockfight's endorsed by a politician. So if a political Which leader's like, it's okay, they're like, eh, we're not going to do anything about it. But recently... Uh, in recent years, organizations, including the Humane Society, have sought to track these cockfights. And many of these cockfighting events, they've found, are being streamed in real time to enable online betting. So people are betting on these things online. So would you personally, or personally, would you rather your boyfriend be a football hooligan or a cockfighting hooligan? Well, I'm English, so obviously I'm used to the football hooligans. Bring, bring that on all the live long day. Let's <laughs> let's bring the firms back. Let's bring all the firms back. Let's put the Grolsch tops on our sneakers and go and like lever some cunts. No, these people are like <laughs> these people are cocks, man. They don't even have a choice. And like then now they're getting knives strapped to their feet and they have to fight until death. Like at least like for factory farming, you and me are both vegetarians. But at least, yeah the majority of those chickens are going to get eaten. It's what you like to think. Well, These I'd like to think just... they're killed humanely. You know, I mean... They are, like... I try not to think about way. it, but... 
but they, these birds are born to die, which is really sad in a savage way, in a savage manner. For sport. our entertainment, it's a blood spot. Is animal rights advocates link cockfighting with other illegal activities apart from gambling, such as the use of child labor. Children are employed to serve illicit alcohol and food to visitors. They're also tasked with cleaning up the blood after the matches. They then pluck the feathers of the dead roosters for the winner to take home. Well, the little hands can get into all the places where all the blood has spilled, like, easier than the bigger hands. I can understand that. Makes me wonder, so if you have, like, a winning rooster, so do you have a wall of just the feathers of all the dead cocks? All the dead, yeah, you will. You'll just have your dead cocks. That's your trophy? On the wall. It's a cockfighting trophy. So That's I a wonder thankless if job, a... though, you know, I wonder if you just blood. fight your cock. Because if you're earning all this money, would you not just, like, retire with your cock and be, like, we're partners Well, now? if you're, yeah, I mean, if your cock made that much, I mean, if your cock was a champion, like Muhammad Ali of cocks. Yeah, a champion cock. Would you guys just not retire together and be, like, I'm now going to give this, this like, champion cock the best life it deserves? And just, yeah, I, mean, I don't know, well, get, get, let it get some chickens and shag them all the live long day. You probably would breed it, don't you think? So yeah, you could, could breed it get, and then sell could, those cocks. Well, or, um, or fight, or have like a whole fleet of cock fighting cocks. A fleet of cocks. <laughs> but <laughs> could you it. imagine, though, like... Saturday night. I wonder if the kids, if that's like a good job, though, in India, is like cleaning up the blood. On the, you know, on the, well, on, would you rather be sewing clothes for Primark, or would you rather be um, cleaning, you know, serving adult drinks at a party? Don't most, don't most parents, when they have kids and they have a party in their house, they make their kids help. So it's it's technically the same thing. Yeah, it's but there's okay. Involved. There's serving drinks versus cleaning up the blood and plucking the feathers out of the dead rooster. I'd much rather serve the drinks if I was given the choice. I would I would prefer to serve the drinks too. But I mean, yeah, I'm I'd sure either do that one than, though. That's so close for Primark. Any I'm day. sure all of those jobs don't have decent health care or 401k. You know, these are illegal jobs, Steve. They don't have anything. <laughs> But this is truly a horrible crime, and uh, obviously it's it's happening worldwide, and people are endorsing it by betting on it online. So, um, yeah, I'm not quite sure exactly how it'll be stopped, but hopefully more roosters are willing to kill the rooster jockeys. I'm hoping that if happens. If there's any cocks listening to this podcast right now, I just want you to know that there is a way out. There's probably a helpline number that you can ring in India if you're being abused by your cock owner. Um, there's there's a future for you outside of the cockfighting world. Come Take to the my power house. back. Slice Take the off power back. the rooster jockey's cocks. Exactly, me too. Do. Get take your power. What do you have here for the second story? So my second story also involves the death of cocks, hmm. and that's two dead in Jefferson County is an Ohio murder suicide. Did they have uh, razors attached to their claws? No, this is this is with big boy guns. Although, oh. imagine imagine if you could train your cock to like work a little pistol. That would be quite. That would like elevate. That's the next level of cockfighting where they have like little pistols in their talons. I think you could do it. So this cool. occurred in Steubenville. I'm saying that right, I Steubenville. Is it Steubenville, Ohio? That's how it's. I'm saying it. Is it Ohio? Yeah. Oh, okay. Ohio. Yeah. Steubenville. So the, uh, there was a man, a man in Steubenville, who is still so angered over his breakup with a Bloomingdale area woman several years ago, several years ago, 
And he uh, brutally went and executed her current boyfriend, and then he took his own life. God, and I love this guy. Ex. This is the Jefferson County Sheriff, Fred Abdallah, reporting. Isn't that a great name, Abdallah? It's a, it's weird, a, it's nearly... a weird name for someone who lives in Steubenville, Ohio. Abdallah? Fred Abdallah. Yeah, I think it's, it's like sounds nearly... Arabic. It's nearly, uh, yeah, it's nearly like something out of Indiana Jones. I know, but just Steubenville, Ohio is like in the middle of fucking nowhere. Like, I'm surprised this Arabic guy ended up there. So Abdallah said that the victim, um, 69-year-old Richard Miser of Jewett, Ohio, he was shot six times with several of the bullets fired point blank into his head while his girlfriend, uh, the gunman's ex-girlfriend, she's not being identified probably because of the fucking trauma, she was forced to watch. Ooh. God, that's brutal. Six times. Is the guy just a really bad shot? Point bl- No, point blank. That's like boom, 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 boom. He must have had a semi-automatic. Don't at me about guns. I do not know fucking jack shit about guns. Well, but semi-automatic, six times in the head. Firing. Yeah. In the head. While, you, while your fucking ex is watching. So the, I love how it says the suspected shooter. It's like, <laughs> no, I'm. there's only one suspect here. Also 69. This guy called Terry Miller, and he's from the area too. Um, after shooting this guy six times, he bravely, courageously turned the gun on himself, but not before telling his ex, the woman, that he would have he should have killed her too. That was wait, his wait, final wait. words. So he broke into their house. He shot her current boyfriend six times, 16, murdered him, yeah, made her another watch, year and then he sat down. At the table, looked at her, he's like, I should have killed you too. And then just shot himself. Why did he and shoot her? Saved the last bullet for himself. I I don't know. Maybe this is an ultimate form of like emotional torture, isn't it? Because she, mm-hmm. like, imagine being her next boyfriend now after this, after an event like this, and be like, oh, yes, yeah, so what happened to your last relationship? Well, there's some baggage there. So he shot a person six times. Six times. And he talked to the man while he laid there dying with three bullet holes in him saying, why don't you die? And then he shot him three more times. <laughs> America. I just, I just keep picturing like a George Costanza type guy with like these anger management issues that comes in there. He's like all pissed off, you know, bitching for what, six years, four years after the relationship? Several years ago. Several years after the relationship that she's moved on. He's never moved on. He's probably middle age. Well, he's 69 in his 60s, you know, balding, kind of probably paunchy. And then finally he's just like, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to do it. And he breaks in the house. And he's just like, and you're going to sit there and watch. And then he shoots her, shoots him and he just keeps shooting him. He's just like, why won't you die? God damn it. You know, like why freaking out. Why don't you die? <laughs> I'm imagining more like an Got Al Pacino type. I think Al Pacino could play this role. Oh, I bet you he could. Yeah, yeah and he could, could show you, you could the play lead any up. role. Not any role, but yes, he can. <laughs> Let's go for it. So after this, after the suspect had shot himself at the dining room table, uh, the woman called nine 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 one one, and the deputies are already en route. Uh, and then his stepson also called the sheriff's department to report that his father, his stepfather, was had said to him that he's going to go and just kill a guy. Wait, before so this- he did all this, he gave his father or stepfather like an inkling here, like, I'm going to go 
go kill yeah, this guy. Yeah, he said to his stepson, he was like, I'm going to go and kill him. I'm going to go and kill a guy. Oh, he called his stepson. And his step- what is his stepson called the cops? Stepson also called the cops to be oh, like, yo, okay. um, so my stepdad's missing and he said he was going to go and kill someone. His stepdad's uh, calls- mental. Yeah, the calls came in at roughly around the same time, about like 10 to 2 in the morning. So he went there late at night. Oh. So, Do you think he just went in there, got the job done immediately, or do you think he like sat down and had like a very awkward you know, conversation at gunpoint with his well, ex and her new boyfriend? So um, the good sheriff is saying um, that he had t- they had dated for around four years. She'd moved on. She had a nice new boyfriend. Um, and he was upset about this. And he spent several years blaming this new boyfriend for ruining his life. He had also continuously threatened to kill her. And he's also continuously threatened that he would just show up at her house and he would turn the gun on himself. So I imagine that he snuck into the house and terror. probably didn't have to say a fucking thing. I'm sure as soon as they both saw him, her stomach would have dropped and she was like, that's it, we're both dead here. Did she, like, report him to the police? Like, do people know about that he was giving her threats like this? Uh, Well, they must know if if there's been claims about him. So he shot him three times. Then he sits down talking to his ex-girlfriend, who's probably absolutely pissing her pants. And then he goes over and shoots the guy three more times in the head. And he, t- he specifically told her to sit there and watch everything that he was doing. God, this guy's mental. I wonder if I was the other guy and if I wasn't like a tough guy, I would have hired someone to take care of this dude. Not murder him, just beat the shit out of him. Uh, to, uh, run him out of town or do something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that, yeah. I always think in this situation, if there's somebody who is like threatening your life, why don't you just um, move away? Oh, fuck just that. She probably yourself. owns a home. Like, you can't just get home, up and move. Like, if you genuinely feel that somebody, and this guy spent like several years harassing her, I'd move. I'd just, there'd come a time where you're just going to call it a day and be like, why do I still live here when he knows where I live? I could just move away. I don't know. I don't think I'd put my tail between my legs and run. I don't want to be chased out of town by this guy. If I was well, her boyfriend, if I was, her, if I was her boyfriend, I would have taken care of business here. Um, so the good sheriff, Abdallah, uh, said there would have been, could have been more bloodshed, but the roads had been covered in ice and that kind of, um, it slowed the response time of his deputies. Um, because obviously this guy could have shot the police too, if they just showed up on time. Well, I'm surprised he didn't murder her. I, I am mean, surprised I, I think why well, I, I kind of agree with you is probably that form of emotional torture, but it sounds like he just was going in there. Wanted to kill this guy and her current boyfriend in front of her is like, you can't have, you know, you, you can't be happy, basically. So they recovered cards on this man's dead body. He had stamped them. Uh, they were ready to be mailed. Why he didn't mail them, I don't know. One was to oh, an like ex-girlfriend. Christmas cards or birthday cards or something? Like, you know, just, just like letters. Cards. Right. Yeah, one was to an, another ex-girlfriend in Las Vegas. Fucking loves keeping contact with his ex-girlfriends, doesn't he? And another one was to a family member in West Virginia. And in these letters, he was admitting that his life was miserable and he was blaming this unnamed woman for everything. 
He said he had to do it. He wanted to do it. He said he'd kill Miser a hundred times in his mind and that the anger had been building. God, what a bitter, resentful fuck. Oh, God. Imagine if, like, you're that ex-girlfriend in Las Vegas and you just got this fucking letter off him. You'd be like, oh, it's this fucking cunt again. Would yeah, you be like, oh. no wonder I broke up with you? You pathetic no piece of shit. So, uh, oh, the good sheriff is saying here that the woman had initially had a protection order out against him after Ooh. their breakup four years ago, but she had dropped it because it was four years ago. Um, this suspect, the guy who did the deed, his only other interaction with law um, was in the mid-80s when he was arrested and sentenced to seven to 25 years in prison for drug trafficking. Oh. So he is an ex-con. He's a 100% wanker. That's for sure. <laughs> but yeah, you know, that's the thing, though. This is an interesting case. It's kind of like, it's in a sense, it's kind of like that Amy Nicole girl that I knew yes. here that was murdered. She had a, an abusive boyfriend. They dated only for like a couple of years. It was a very abusive relationship. And she broke up with him. He stalked her for like a year or two, threats, things like that, threatening current boyfriends. She got a protective order against him. And then it was lasted for like a good, I don't know, like 10 years or something? Ten, something like that, 10 years. And then it just sort of, I think, expired. And she hadn't heard from him in a while, so it didn't matter. And then she saw him at an event that she was like a host or something at, or hostess at. And then he flipped out and, and uh, caused a scene day later broke into her house and killed her it's mental yeah the other thing, i always think when you break up with someone as well you don't talk to that person for at least a year you've got to give each other both time to move on and just like forget about each other and to get like out of each other's lives you do not contact that person again if the unless other, you have to if, i mean if you have, unless you have to yeah, you, you have know to like obviously belongings or something or yeah i mean beyond that i mean when the split is complete oh yeah yeah when, yeah yeah i'm not saying if you if there's children or any of that shit but give each other time to fucking heal if this like if somebody's doing this to you where they're talking about coming out to kill you and doing all of that just fucking move <laughs> change your name Get I think I think a person me. like that would be able to find you. This guy's obviously mental. I think he would track you down somehow. Probably knows relatives or something, and he's, he's going to be. The threat needs to be terminated. Put it that way. I feel sorry for his ex girlfriend <laughs> in Las Vegas as well. I bet she heard from him all the time. God, yeah. Is there a she picture of this guy? Is there a picture of him? There isn't. All right, I, I picture George Costanza. I'm George picturing Costanza. it. I'm, I'm thinking of Al Pacino in an award-winning role. Send of a woman. I can't. Can you do that impression? No. Okay. <laughs> Damn it. People, send your story to podcast at gmail.com. We have some phone calls come up next. 323-522-4032 is that number. I think we have one more losing virginity story. Yes. That's it. The last one to play. Anyway, first, uh, here's a word from Adam and Eve. Hey, guys. It's me, Stephen. I'm a huge fan of your show. Thanks to your awesome coupon code, Diddle, I can buy myself loads of good sex toys. Since both of my wives died, and my Logaric's disease got pretty bad, let's just say things in the bedroom got pretty boring. But thanks to adamandeve.com and coupon code 
Got a few phone calls to get to. 323-522-4032 is the number of that hotline. People need some good calls. Been unimpressed with the quality oh. of the phone calls we've been getting recently. Ooh, you're getting stern. I know. I've been like, you know, I made a new fucking message. A very funny, very good <laughs> message. One of the best messages you'd ever hear. A great, amazing message. And uh, I don't think many people are listening to it right now. No, I'm joking. We, we actually have most... been getting we have been getting some decent calls, but I want yeah, more. Yeah, your mo- uh, most outrageous stories, people. Come on, I know we've all been locked inside for a year. I'm trying to build a backlog, you know. Tread your memory banks. Bring it out. We got a really good one from the Wad this week, though. I'm saving Love it. The Wad, yeah. Yeah, and then another guy that was like the guy that called in about um, the girl who uh, was sending pictures of her butthole. Okay. That guy called back. Yeah. I want more from Marshall Island Tony. I always want to hear from you, Marshall Island Tony. Some of our Japanese buddies. There's a few Japanese guys there that have some good stories. Oh, has has Adam rang back? I like Adam too. Not since the last present one. But anyway, three two three five two two four zero three two. Keep it under three minutes. This first uh this first one is a, a notorious caller. Calls in with a grievance that actually, you know. I gotta say, I I agree with his sentiments for the first time. It's the first time I think I've ever agreed with this caller. I've been villain. We have um, one person dead who needs to be dead. It's Rush Limbaugh. It's a good thing. He's a hate monger. He's a Nazi. He should be dead. And everyone dance on his grave. And I've wanted him dead. That deaf motherfucker who was just a hateful asshole. Yeah, we're good. God damn it. We're happy that Rush Limbaugh's dead and Trump should be dead too. Fuck them. Probably we're That's probably the villain. Than you. Yeah. Bye. That's probably the most words I've ever heard Bona Villain ever say. I know they're always like 20 second phone calls, 30 second phone calls. But this is the first time I think I've ever agreed with Bonerville about anything. I do enjoy his entertaining phone calls, but this is this is the first time I feel that he's ever expressed a true opinion. Well, he expresses his true opinion of hatred towards me every call. That, yeah, which like I can totally understand. <laughs> You're like, um, I can relate to that one. I can relate to him on his feelings for that. But usually he's just ringing in to talk about like how many guns or houses he owns. But this is the first time I think he's ever given a real opinion about something well, he and it i are in agreement own. over this like i, I am I'm in agreement like, you know too villain i agree rush I like how he was threw a in... fat hateful nazi fuck i like how he threw in trump at the end yeah he like... killing, but then trump. he had to hang up in case like his mum was listening his mom <laughs> trumper he was like oh shit <laughs> she could hear me upstairs mom heard me swearing on the phone yeah. oh, you know, yeah. i'm actually kind of surprised like did you think uh villain would be would hate Rush Limbaugh and Trump? I don't know. Uh, no, I would have thought that he would have been all about the Trump. And yeah, I mean, you know, he not owns 30 homes in fucking Colorado. He owns streets. And he owns streets, streets. He owns the streets. He owns the homes. He has like a gun 
if anyone can tell me about semi-automatic weapons, even though I don't want anyone to bother, it would be Bonneville. He's got an arsenal of weapons. He's got like he 20, 20 cars. Most people who have an arsenal of weapons, 20 cars, own multiple homes, tend to like Rush Limbaugh and Trump. So I'm a little surprised. Yeah. Wow. Bonneville has some uh, has some secret class that he's in hiding from us. Yeah, no, no, it definitely hit me from left field, that call. So it was good to hear from you, Bonervillain, and good to be in agreement with you for once. Bonervillain is not going to enjoy this. No, he's, he's not. Ba- I, think he's, I think he's baiting you out, and next time he's going to ring back, and it's going to be back to form. Yeah, he'll be but back yes. to form. Well, I do enjoy his hate towards you. So. I am a little surprised, though. Uh, this next call is actually an interesting one. Remember that guy, Gino? Called in about his mom. I love Gino. Yeah, Gino's great. I love Gino. Well, here he has a story for us. Nice. Hi, Dean Kate. It's Gino again. Sadly, this isn't a mom's story. This is a story about my mate. Um, he was, as a young man, he was quite prolific in the old uh, masturbating or wanking, as we say, uh, <laughs> sort of territory. Uh, you want a word? He used to um, have. I guess he was about, I don't know, let's say 16. And he had uh, an old vest he had from when he was at about six. And apparently that's what he used to uh, used to splurge into, like, over years. He kept it under his bed. It's his cum rag. <laughs> he had a wink vest. Well, I mean, I have a towel that's specifically for the men's cums. It's just the same thing. Yeah, but do you, have, do you use anything for your cum? Like, do you use, like, a towel that you lay down? Like, do you have, like, a, a sweater or something I'm that you wear? I'm not a squirter. Oh, are you talking about, like, the sweater of wackily? No, I'm not, oh, yeah, I'm not a squirter. I don't need to, like, fucking have a beach towel underneath me. But, okay, wait. Do you keep the same cum towel that you've had for every guy the past, like, ten years? I The towel is over ten years old, let me say that. Yeah. Is it dry it's, and it's, crusty? No, I wash it. And oh, okay. It's, it's just the perfect size. And it's like a texture and an ugliness that I don't like. So that's why it became the cum towel. And now I just can't ever replace it because I'm so frugal. Why would I ever replace it? It works. But it's also like full of men's cum. Like, is, is no, it just right I by your bed? Uh, yeah, it's very close to my bed. Is it like underneath the bed or is it in like your nightstand? I have an arm. Is it an armoire at the end of my bed with all my tricks in? And the, uh, the uh, cum towel is in there. See, my problem is uh, I usually just use one of the dish towels that's over here. And then sometimes I, f- I forget which dish towel I've Double. used. And I'm just like, wait a second. And so, you know, I'll wake up in the morning, I'll be all hungover, and I'll grab the dish towel. And we're like, wipe off a dish. And I'm like, wait a second. Is this t- dish towel the cum towel? I need to pick a towel that I use specifically for that purpose. It's- yeah, well, that's what I did because this texture of this towel I do not like. And I was like, men can wipe their dicks on this because I don't want to even wipe my face on it. And that's why it became the cum towel. Wackerly didn't have a sweater that he wore when he masturbated or a sweater that he came all over. He came all over a girl's sweater and put a rose on it. That was, <laughs> we're going to detail that on the Patreon outtakes of Steel. Steel had never heard yeah. that story. I know we've talked, that, but we've talked about that story here in Second Wrong many times. Because it's one of my favorite Wackerly stories. I also enjoy that story. I think it's very romantic. Yeah, Kate found it very romantic that a man would take your sweater, come all over it, and then leave a rose on it. I have a beloved um, Credence Clearwater Revival jumper. And if I came home and I found that covered in cum, 
with a rose rose is also my favorite flower oh i would i'd be like this would man is married? a keeper be like, i'd get married in that jumper married. i would not wash that jumper and we'd get married like the next day would you spread your back. legs open in the room and be like stare at my taint <laughs> where all the negative emotions uh. come from <laughs> and um yeah his mum was ill one day and um his auntie came over to look after him. Um, oh no! Uh, and uh, while he was out, he uh, came back. A bit cold. And he couldn't find his vest anywhere. He was looking for it. We wanted to knock one off, obviously. Uh, and he was, you know, obviously sentimentally attached to this dirty fucking vest full of to cum. <laughs> and uh, especially at that age. It's just- Tons of cum. They got much cum. Oh, yeah, loads. Loads and loads and loads of cum. And he also, at that age, I highly doubt he knows how to use a washing machine. So it probably would have been like, you know, a bit of cardboard in the wind. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I imagine it's like, yeah, tons and tons of cum. I had when, uh, I remember when I was a kid, I had this old poison t-shirt that, I don't know, I must have got it like a thrift store or something. It was always under my bed, and I just like came all over that. And then I was thinking, you, I wonder if did like, it have Brett Michaels' face? The on whole it? band. You were coming on Brett Michaels' face. The whole band, CC. You the came, whole band. You came on every member of Poison. Every face. member of Poison. I cannot believe times. that I have yeah. been on the show for like six months, and this is only just coming out now. Yeah, no, I was just thinking about that. I used to have this old Poison shirt, and uh, it was just always under my bed, and then it just became like my naturally became my jit gel rag. It's like my jizz rag. And then I was thinking, is that kind of gay to be jizzing all over poison yes. all the time? But they kind of yeah, look like girls. They do kind of look like girls, but they're yeah. also still boys. And you would have had your eyes open as you were looking. Well, no, typically face. I was looking at porn and then I would just grab it and just jizz yeah, on it. But the jizz was all over poison. Them. Yeah. And you you're know? coming on a man's face. So that is kind of gay. Yeah, it is. I was thinking about that. I've never been a fan of Poison either. I think that's why I jizzed all why over the became, shirt. Yeah. Well, if but you're gonna... it was one of the first concerts I ever came to when I moved here. Well, it was after I moved. I'd been here like maybe a year. And uh, no, actually, it was the summer after I moved here. It was in eighth grade. Went to the show with a couple of friends of mine, and I got a Poison t-shirt. And I just never was a never a big Poison fan. But no, I love to jizz. Bands. I love to jizz all over them. I, I would probably jizz in anger over Poison because they are so <laughs> terrible. <laughs> They're popular at the time. And it. Uh, then he noticed that his uh, room had been completely tidied up. Um, in his absence, his auntie had decided to go through his room and tidy it up and clean everything. No. And he looked out of his bedroom window and he saw the said vest mm-hmm. on the washing line outside. <laughs> So she found this crusty sweater, stiff as a board. Yeah, this little just six-year-old like, vest. I have to wash of, it. A little living community of fucking cum on it. Like, probably going moldy with cum. And she it's it. like a fucking sea monkey village so, or something. If it's gay that you're coming on poison, is this kind of incestuous? Because your auntie has now touched your cum. Yeah, but she didn't, like, so, lick it or anything. No, but she's touched it and had it in her hand. And then maybe she didn't wash her hands straight afterwards and touched her face. Like, that's how you get the coronavirus. So is it is it incestuous? So you're basically saying... Did he come on his auntie? Mate's auntie blew him, more or less. He, yeah, she's basically... 
he's basically come on his auntie. Yeah, I guess in a sense. Yeah. You know? uh, and yeah, that obviously means his auntie had uh, taken the uh, sticky vest <laughs> and washed it. Sticky and he vest. said that. Uh, Sweaty sort of, vest. After that, the vest was it was never the same for him. <laughs> yeah. Dirty boy. Aren't we all dirty boys at that age, though, I suppose? All right, and now, take it easy. still Gino. Hey, Gino! <laughs> oh, my God, that's hilarious. So afterwards, the sweater's rude now that it's clean. doesn't have, yeah. like, years of cum buildup that just smell. Can you imagine the smell? It would have gone moldy. Oh, God. Well, I think it would be. Cre- I think it would just be dry and crusty, but it probably yeah, but had like just... a certain texture. I imagine he would. He wouldn't have like you know been folding it very nicely. I imagine he'd been splooging in it and then just crumpling it up and putting it back under his bed. And that's how the mold and bacteria will build up. So yeah, I bet it probably did fucking sting. Well, sometimes though, it, it's you know depending on how they masturbate, guys get in these like weird routines, and that's the only way they can come. You uh, know, women too. Like it's a, yeah, a well, which can be kind of harmful. Like, I mean, one of my ex-girlfriends oh, was saying course. she dated a guy who could only come when, like, it was like his dick had had to be in between his thighs, and and they he had to be like jerked off with his dick in between his thighs and his legs up by his head. He couldn't come from just regular sex. That is weird. Yeah, well, I think it's just years of masturbating like that in that position. I know, but at what point do you get to it where you're like, I can only come now if I'm doing that? Well, That's weird. She said they would have sex, and they would have sex I for don't... a long time because he couldn't come. And so she would have, like, you know, several orgasms. But then in order to finish him off, he, he had, to do that. had to do that. She she wouldn't be able to, like, it still wouldn't work even if she was doing it. He, he had to put his legs above his head. Dick in between his thighs and wank it. Yeah. That's so weird. I, yeah, I she was turned that. off by it, she said. It is a turn off. At you that be point. Into it? No, at that point, I'd probably just be like, well, I'm going to go for a piss and uh, yeah, take care I'm of business. While you're taking care of business, I'm going to go for a piss and like, I don't want to watch this. Well, I would be like, put your face over my cock so I can spray it into your face. Yeah, but I think he still wouldn't have come, would he? Because <laughs> oh, you're ruining it. You're ruining it. You're Get ru- out of the room. Because you're ruining it. Yes. Give me so, my sweater vest. <laughs> I need your CCR jumper. <laughs> well, that's a great call. Thank you, Gino. Did uh, Does your mate still have the vest? Yeah, I'd like to know that. That's what I'd like to know. You're good crack, Gino. Good yeah. crack. All right, last call here. This is the uh, last losing your virginity story. And I'm not going to say anything about it, but I have a suspicion about this one. Oh. Hey, fuckers. So you guys probably have plenty of virginity horror stories at this point, I thought. This guy's got a great voice. I was just about Does to say he? his voice His voice is kind of making... Sounds like Waylon Jennings a bit. It's making my pussy throb a little. It's quite sexy. <laughs> I like it. I'd call in. Uh, I'm gonna borrow my poison shirt. Yeah. <laughs> as a counterpoint, in the true spirit of St. Valentine's Day, with my own tender romantic uh, story of uh, becoming a man. So the year was uh, 1995 uh, in Chicken Fucker, Indiana, and I was a pudgy, pale, underdeveloped 14-year-old boy with Is very this how low they sound self-esteem, in Indiana? a little, little homunculus of a. Uh, 
don't know if it's, this doesn't sound like a typical Midwestern accent. I was going to say, I'm moving to Indiana if the men sound like that there. Oh, God, it's a, it's a wretched state. If Mike Pence out. was the fucking governor, put it that way. Well, I'm not moving there for Mike Pence, am I D? Does Mike there Pence for sound like this? <laughs> no. <laughs> Being. And she was Melissa, my darling Melissa. My mountaintop, my peak, everything I had but couldn't keep. And uh, she was around 35, stout, big shoulders, big hairy feet, big brown <laughs> eyes that never seemed to point quite in the same direction, and just a mild case of Down syndrome. I met her through a group of friends. Is who, this good? Uh, would... Sounds like it. But aren't you kind of doubting the authenticity of this? I am, but this guy is spinning a yarn, and I am along for this journey. Yeah, I like, I like the suspense, yarn. My, my um, suspense of belief has been turned on. <laughs> and I, you're suspending been, your disbelief and letting it go. I am. Right. I am because He's I am about to shag a retarded girl. It's Over there, Harry Fuller place. Uh, after school and sort of set off fire extinguishers and steal shit and eat all our food and just generally... Uh, express themselves as the uh, degenerate scumbags that God made them. Uh, so I ended up over there one afternoon with them. And, you know, I'm sitting around, and she's uh, regaling us with stories of all the of all the, the dirty, anonymous sex that she's having and, you know, the story of uh, how she got uh, double penetrated by a couple of Marines the night before. Okay, who's banging this retarded girl? I guess she has mild Down syndrome, but still. In Gummo, she did pretty all right, didn't she? The, yeah, but that was the, the brother pimping her out. Like, this girl's, like, going no, out. No, it was and... the father, actually. No, it wasn't the father. It was the brother. No, it was the father. It was the brother. Oh, okay. Um, but the brother was pimping her out. And so here, in this one, it's like this girl's going out to the bars and stuff like that. And she's like. You know Down syndrome people are, are fucking horny creatures, though. They mm-hmm. will They will ride anyone into battle. They they wank like chimps. I want to know how you know that, but I kind of don't. <laughs> it's a known fact. They have like super high sex drives. And you know what? It's kind of like a, a karmic curse on them because their sex drives are so strong, but yet they're sterile. Oh, wow. Well, that's probably a good thing. Wait, are all Down syndrome people sterile? All Down people are sterile. And um, they have massive, insane high sex drives. That's why they, they just wank yeah. like chimps. Yeah, you've learned something new today. And, you know, that's pretty romantic, so, you know. I looked at her. She looked at me. And uh, she asked me if I wanted to go have sex. And I was like, eh, but all my buddies were watching, so I was... I agreed. Uh, went in the bedroom, sort of unceremoniously stripped down. And she's laying on the bed. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't have an erection. I was nowhere near an erection. This is miles away from, you know, any kind of an erection at all. But her, her vagina was so stretched out by her promiscuous activities that uh, I managed to kind of match. You know what's kind of funny about this one? It reminds me of a girl. I'm not going to say her name. This girl I went to high school with that all my friends shagged. And I always wanted <laughs> to shag her, too, just because all my friends shagged her, which is just Again. a weird form of logic. Like, like why, why would that... Maybe just because I could be like, yeah, shagged her too, and I could trade war stories or something. The bo- horror bros, stories. <laughs> yeah, bro stories. Horror I fucked stories. her too, bro. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know what it was, but it's like at least 12 of my friends shagged this girl. And I was just like, kind of bummed I never got to. I don't know if she had like a no 
Jew policy or something. It must but have been a no Jew policy. A lot of girls have sure. those, but I was just like kind of bummed. I just never got the shagger, but yeah. You but should if, look her up. If I was in the same situation where it's like all my buddies were there and it's like, oh, here's your turn, I probably would have done it. I want to know what she looks like now, your, the, your girl that you didn't shag. What do you think her future was after having shagged everyone in high school apart from Jew? I think she's working at a gas station, Bay City, Michigan. Is that what you think? Steel or no? Think. Steel yeah. probably would case. know, actually. My flaccid, underdeveloped 14-year-old boy dick into her. Uh, you know, seething morass of uh, multiple other men's still swimming semen. I moved around for a couple of minutes. It felt like an eternity, but it was probably less than a minute, honestly, until uh, it fell it out. Lube. And I just didn't have the heart to try to put it back in. So, you know... That was it. I had lost my virginity. I decided it was time to go. And Does that count, Kate? No, you have to have a hard cock. No, but I mean, do you have to come? Like, do you have to ejaculate in order to... No, fully... you, don't, you don't necessarily have to ejaculate, but I think you're, you just need to penetrate. your virginity has to penetrate, and this he's just mashing his cock yeah, into but he her. mashed his flaccid dick in there so that it crossed yeah, that's the not, vaginal that's not border. A that's not a penetration, is it? That's a mashing. So you think it was an artificial penetration? Yeah, it was like um, a one step before the full event. But you don't have to actually fully come then. No, you don't have to fully come for it to be as soon a as a hard loss of dick virginity enters someone else willingly. Then it's why am I going like this? Then it is. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wait, are you talking about you get a fist the person before or after? Uh, then it is losing your virginity. <laughs> I tell you what, this it's guy... It's like full-on fisting motion right now. This guy could read the uh, phone book to me, and that would be a date, and he would get puss <laughs> at the end of the night. <laughs> yeah, but I think he only fucks Down Syndrome girls, so... Well. Oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty special, though. Yeah, that's true. I'm a special girl, special K. I've been told I'm special. <laughs> You're somewhere on the spectrum, so maybe... Totally. Maybe you'd... Yeah, maybe you get the I would fit his pecker. criteria. I don't have hairy feet, though, and I am 36. So I'm nearly there. About 10 miles away from Melissa's place, so I needed a ride home uh, from my mother. And I, I knew that this uh, virginity project that I was embarking on uh, would uh, prevent me from being at the appointed uh, rendezvous time and place. So I had called my mother and told her, oh, I'm going to be a little late, and also come pick me up in the parking lot. Uh, right there in front of Melissa's apartment. Um, so I walked out. There's the minivan. Hopped in. And I wouldn't find out until later that my mother was actually Melissa's therapist and so knew exactly <laughs> who she was, where she lived, and what the fuck was going on over there. But I knew in the moment, by the uh, look of abject disgust on her face, that she knew that her baby boy had become a man in the most awful way possible. Um, I don't know who lost more respect for me that day, myself or my mother, but uh, she's never looked at me the same way again. Anyway, that's my story. Thanks for doing the show. Really appreciate all the effort you put into it. I was on Patreon, but uh, it lapsed when I you know, fucked up my bank account. So I'm gonna do it again though, I promise. Come all back, right. come Thanks back to Patreon. <laughs> So I wait, want this smooth talker back on Patreon. His mom's a therapist. Don't why, why don't you ever bring this up again? 
Well, as a therapist mother, you think she would be wanting to talk about this. I don't give a shit if that was a lie or not. I love that tale. I it was a good story. Voice. It was a good story. But I really want to think of a good nick a good nickname for him. All I can think of is sexy Indiana, but that's like nah. Oh, Indiana Jones. I was I was going for like an eerie Indiana uh, play on words, but just changing eerie <laughs> sexy. I don't know, it kind of sounds like Waylon Jennings to me for some reason. I don't know why. Yeah, because he's got that. But he also has that kind of like a film noir detective tone. Kind to of a voice. bit like Dead Bug in a way, doesn't he? He is a bit like, yeah, he's like a kind of James Elroy, Elroy character. I'm going to think of a good name for this guy. I want him back on the Patreon. He, he was good. Yeah, yeah. That was good. If he, if he comes out to the Patreon, I'll send him a picture. <laughs> but that was a contender. <laughs> I, think that was a, I think that was a contender. I actually think that guy... Should do ASMR videos on I think YouTube. He, I think yeah, girls for like would love horny, that. For horny women in their 30s, he would totally have a market. I, um, I think horny women in their 30s would be flowing like a river and they hear this guy just like... Especially the talk of the Down syndrome girl that he shocked. More of that. Reading Dr. Seuss books. It, that doesn't even matter. That's all you got to do. Ooh, reading the now banned Dr. Seuss books. Yeah, the banned Because he's a, dang- he's a dangerous books. detective. <laughs> detective danger? No, that's too, that's too corny. That's corny. It's got to be named. Call him Waylon. I think that's good. No, because I I, if this guy turns out to be an asshole, I don't want Waylon uh, tainted. Because Waylon Jennings <laughs> is like my number two man. You don't want the association. Yeah. So I guess we have to uh, pick a winner here for the virginity story. So that's the last one. That's the last one I got. Last one. Well, obviously Kate's this up was to it. You. Well, I think that was a fabrication, even though it was highly delightful. It was um, good. He, nothing Nothing has been twisted Firestarter for me. Maybe I was more drawn towards that one because it's so it's like such a tale about how to be British. I can't I'm trying to think. You, I liked them. I did like a Twisted Firestarter, I think, one. I love the Wads. I do love the Wads story. The Wads is great, but the Wads, because he didn't finish it. He ne- there were so many questions left unanswered. Although I feel like the Wad is the runner-up. But Marshall Island Tony Marshall also Island Tony's deserves, is great. Yeah. He deserves a prize as well because he was the guy who inspired like this competition. Hers is good. You know, I kind of yeah, liked all of good. them. But I think if I had to pick a winner, it'd it's be Twisted Firestarter. God, that was Yeah. That, God, was, that was hilarious. Tragic. And it's just for anyone who ever wants, like, what is Britain like, that's Britain. <laughs> Your mates yeah, will just, bully you, no matter what you do. That just is what the trauma do. of that whole that whole scenario. Being sixteen, I just love the fact he went to army when he's like, "Oh, I believe in God." <laughs> I kind of want to, you know, maybe I'll post it on uh, Patreon or Discord or something. He sent a picture of him in the army. He looks like a child. He looks like oh, a, a like a twelve year old boy. Yeah, no, he That's... looks he looks very young. He looks very young. I'll send him something, and you'll send him something. Definitely gonna send him. A, I'm gonna send him a prize. He won the uh, the competition, but uh, but thank you everybody for sending your your uh, loss, yeah, love, losing Virginia stories. I or... lo- it's my one of my favorite questions. My other favorite question to ask people that puts them on edge is, um, "Have you been arrested? And if so, what for?" Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Have you ever been to jail? Have you ever spent the night in jail? Have you ever been to jail? And that might be the next topic. That's good. Yeah, that's a good the question. next competition. Yeah, dropping this. And if you and if you did, did you drop the soap? <laughs> <laughs> 
People call 323-522-4032. Uh, check out the new Reddit page. It's not really that new. It's been up there for a few months, but it's there's some gross shit on there. I've been posting there. I kind of took a little break from posting there. I'm going to get back to posting more stuff there. Um, but yeah, there's yeah, some I'm- like horrendous, vile things on that Reddit. I just like how it's unfettered. Like You can post whatever you want. You know? I will not delete anything you post. And I, oh, no, there's some nice things. Like um, a, a really nice Reddit user put up a lovely um, picture for my birthday with his cat. And it said, happy birthday, Kate. Oh, that's so, very nice. Thank you. You know who you uh, are. There are some nice people out there in this world that listen to the show. Surprise. Yes. Go to uh, Reddit. Do a search for r slash sick and wrong podcast. No spaces. Also, the Patreon is uh, blowing up. It really is. There's a lot of people going on the Patreon, and we do appreciate it. It's awesome. I, I, you know, it, that's to me right now. After like 15 years of doing the show, it that's what keeps me going because it's like people the supporting Patreon. the show. You yeah, know? I like the Patreon. I love all the comments. We're getting lots more comments and stuff. Well, I also kind of have fun doing. I, I have fun doing the regular show now. So it's I'm a lot more fun. It's a lot more fun for me now doing the show. Um, Kate brings this whole new vitality to it. Um, but I've been doing the show for a long time. It's Patreon. It's kind of like, you know, you can like let your hair hang down. You can pull your dick out. You can have a good time. You can have a good yeah. time. It's like, it's you know. It's a balls out party. Yeah. It's a lot less guarded. It's a lot less structured. You know, it's a lot more freeform radio on there. And, uh, and we, yeah, we, we have a lot of fun. We have fun doing uh, Patreon. Do a lot, we're doing Absolutely. a lot of extra content now. We, we, do, we still do an extra news story, do some extra phone calls. But we do this new segment called Sick and Wrong News, news. where we kind of cover, like, just kind of cherry-pick news topics um, through the week that we'd never do on the regular show because it doesn't tip, you know, fit within our thematic structure of Sick and Wrong. Um, but like this week, for example, we talked about Gen Z, Generation Z, the Zoomers, trying to cancel Eminem. But the yeah, millennials, cool, guys. the millennials push back, push yeah, back me, hard. My generation, we fucked you up. Don't come for Daddy Eminem. We, we also love go him. into uh, detail about Rudy Giuliani's daughter, who <laughs> loves threesomes. Total slut that one. I'm not trying to slut shame, but she's a slut. Um, but yeah. th- but that's the thing. In the best that's the way. Thing. Yeah, she's just slut in a good way, actually. I think she's kind of hot. I was surprised too because I wouldn't want to like bang a girl in any way that resembles Giuliani. It, I don't think she's hot. I boner. think she's got that kind of girl next door vibe against her. But she's made hotter by the fact that she it. absolutely hates her dad, and I like that about her. I totally hate it. You just want to like come on her face so you can pretend you're coming on a Rudy Giuliani's Giuliani. face. Yeah, <laughs> wipe would it up she be with wearing my poison your t-shirt? poison t-shirt? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, we do all that, and then also we do a a, a bonus episode, like a mini sode. We call it "Sick and Wrong Overkill." And this week, Kate kind of went through bizarre medical treatments throughout the I don't know last couple hundred years. Uh, my oh, favorite, centuries, babe. my favorite centuries. was the. Uh, fart jar okay, and a lot of detail about hilarious. the fart jar so go yeah, find out about fart jars the egyptians loved abortions <laughs> yeah egyptians and romans loved abortions so anyway a lot going on, on the patreon just go to patreon.com slash sick and wrong also there's a t public store if you want to buy some sick and wrong merch just go to sick podcast.com slash shop click on the picture of the pope buy yourself some sick and wrong merch finally here's sick and wrong song of the week 
Um, I'm going to end this show with a Kim Fowley song. Kim Fowley. A lot of people might recognize the name Kim Fowley. He was the manager of The Runaways. An all-around creepy, creepy man. I met him, yes. you know, he's kind of one of those like L.A. stalwarts that was just for a time, I mean, he's dead now, but for a time, any like goth type party that there'd be young goth girls, you'd see creepy ass fucking Kim Valley walking around like some usually with a cane because he was so old. But I had a couple from my friend Holly uh, was really good friends with him. My friend Lenore was really good friends with him. So cross paths with that guy a lot. And yeah, just he wanted to parties. put. He wanted to put me in a band, but I was against it. Yeah, <laughs> You're old, just, Kim Fowley. I'm not being in your fucking bands. Just this ghoulish-looking pervert. Yeah, uh, But totally. the guy was in, in a, a lot of... In a good way. But he was in, like, a lot of bands. He put You know, he, he had his own band. He, like, um, you know, produced his own music. And uh, a lot of his music is really good, actually. I have, his, I have several of his albums. Uh, this particular song is a bit of a more obscure single. Only came out on 45. It's off of uh, a, a comp called King of the Creeps. Very fitting. Um, Lost Treasures from the Vaults, 1959-1969. The song came out in 1965. It's called The Trip. And it has to do with LSD. So it's by uh, Kim Valley. We're going to end the show with that one. People will be back next week with episode 782. Till then, take it sleazy. Summertime's here, kitties. And it's time to take a trip. To take a trip. This world's so bad. You feel so sad. You gotta take a trip. Into a world so glad. A world of frogs. And green fountains. And flying dogs. And silver cats. And emerald rats. And purple clouds. And faceless crowds. And walls of glass. Never pass And pictures hanging upside down You won't ask where you are It's another world You and your girl And all your friends Will all be there Oh yeah Let's take a trip Let's take a trip TNT SOS H-O-P T-O-P Actually had several towels that he used and he like even kept some in his car because i remember cup. yeah like his his he called it a jit gel rag a jit gel that's what he always that's why i think i said that on the show earlier but a jit gel rag that's what steel used to call it and uh yeah he fucking kept it in his car so i remember sometimes me and kessler would sit down in his car he's like oh you don't want to sit on that it's like <laughs> what he's like that towel 
He's like, oh shit, why? He's like, oh, it's my cum towel. You know, like, you're jailbreak. You're just like, God, fuck. Well, is it just because sometimes you get in his car and just get the car bonus and just have to take care of business? Steele and Martin, you can ask him about this. Steele and Martin would go on trips, and Steele would go in the back seat, and he would and like one, he would just like wink, you know, pulling off in the back seat while Martin was Boys. driving. That's well, fucking gross. I will ask Steele about this. Me and Steele also have a new enterprise, but I'm going to save that the next time we're on the Patreon because me and Steele need to flesh out the enterprise. Flesh out the enterprise? We, me and Steele are like a creative force. We have like four different ideas in the in You're kind of like a female Steele in, in many ways. 